Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're covering Season 3, Episode 5, titled Kissed by Fire, which I don't think they could have picked a better name for this episode. There's a lot of fire. There is a lot of fire. A lot of Lord of the Light. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people being kissed. It's, it's real good. And all kinds of body parts. Yeah. Yeah, all over the place. A lot of steamy, <laughs> unconventional sex, sex, sex sexual energy. <laughs> <laughs> the ghost of Sean Connery just possessed my body. I don't know what happened. Understandable for this episode. Uh, what'd you think? Uh, yeah, like you said, it's uh, I I really like it. Um, I thought it was cool to see. Like this is, you know, for people that are fans of Jamie, uh, you know, or, or looking to see you know him kind of turn from the heel character to the face. Like this episode is the thing that has done the most so far to be like thinking mayors may maybe there's different layers of this guy um if you low-key brienne jamie shipper uh you get a lot of uh, red meat for that diet uh you get tywin you know once again befuddling all his children regardless of their standing in his eyes uh you got john's hot tub scene in the north uh you got a pretty good one-on-one duel um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's, uh, pretty much all good it is uh, for people watching the video today, we're wearing some pretty I just uh, apt clothing. We're we're both wearing red today. Battle red for Thursday in the studio. Yeah, this uh, podcast is kissed by fire too. Oh, you know the other thing. Oh, that's clever. Um, uh, that we should have planned it out beforehand. Uh, also, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of human moments that Stannis gets, uh-huh. and this episode's one of them. You know, the fact that he has got a little bit of a soft spot for his little girl that his not even, even his wife he's shares. Been humbled. Yeah. Now, now that he he doesn't have concerns outside of his family, sure. Yeah. Well, you think so? I mean, I don't think this comes out of this. I don't think this springs from nothing. Like, there's, he's got to have had. A yeah, little bit. but he's been brought low, and now all of a sudden he cares what his family thinks. I look, I, I get it. He had a war to fight. Mm-hmm. You know, he had mm-hmm. a, th- a throne to claim, but he did, did not seem too concerned with his family or their well being for most of this series. You're not you're not one to declare him Stannis to Manus. Not is what no. I'm hearing here. Not okay. not because he goes and visits his daughter one time. No. Yeah. All right. Gotta be a better father than that. To get Manus uh status. Anyway, yeah, I I really like this episode too. Um I thought there are a couple of like really good scenes, uh that are low key some of the best scenes I think in this episode like there's obviously the Jamie and Brienne stuff which I loved um but there's the the stuff with Littlefinger mm-hmm. and Sansa and like Littlefinger's play to you know the, the battle rages between Elena and Marjorie and Littlefinger and the control for Sansa in the north uh and then when you combine that with Tywin's look at it and the stuff that he's making his kids do uh for the realm or rather for his dynasty mm-hmm. uh I, I think it's just really really good political drama here too mm-hmm. uh and that's kind of what i'm in game of thrones for yeah so. no the behind the scenes like you know cat and mouse game between Varys and littlefinger and tywin and the tyrells uh we saw you know pretty things mostly go by Varys and tyrells way and now yeah. it seems things are mostly going and like i i thought it was so you know it's so cool to see uh tywin kind of like bring his children along with like well you can't risk pissing because what are you talking about this is a plot uh-huh by that by definition that means no like if they came and say you can't do that we were plotting against you then <laughs> right like it's so elementary and it shows that he's playing uh-huh. the game on on the next level yeah uh and some good 
some other good stuff. We'll talk about it. Are we ready to get into the episode recap? I believe so. Okay. Hey, before we get to the episode, as always, want to talk about what's going on here at Bald Move this week. Of course, you know, we've got Better Call Saul Season 4 has returned. We did the first episode. We're also doing something like we did with Westworld, the instant talk. Every Monday night, right after the episode airs, uh, we get online. And if you're a club member, you can log in to baldmove.com, follow the link, and do live chats with us. Get your own feedback and your first impressions in there. Um, And we release it as a podcast. It's a lot of fun. If you're a club member, check it out. Still doing Sharp Objects on HBO. Really entertaining, uh, psychological, kind of murder mystery, thriller kind of action. Um, we are also doing first-run bald movies. Tonight we're checking out Spike Lee's latest, Black Klansman. Oh, boy. I, I, I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> Me either. It looks like it's it's going to be entertaining, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget, every 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday and Thursday, Jim and I get on twitch.tv slash baldmove. And we play video games, and we hang out with chat and talk with people. Um, also, uh, if you're a club member, we dropped a, uh, a quip, one of the, the last quips before it goes on hiatus for a bit. Uh, Quit Your Pitching is a show where Jim and I generate fake uh, titles of te- television shows and movies, and then we try to come up with funny or interesting pitches for them that we trade back and forth. And on a personal note, uh, Kickstarter for the Game of Thrones uh, book, uh, God of Thrones, that I'm writing with a religious scholar about the many religions of, of Westeros and Essos, just concluded yesterday. Uh, it raised over $17,000 to uh, publish and edit and typeset and hire art for the books. And I just want to say thank you so much for your support on that project. If you are a backer, uh, stay tuned because you'll be getting some emails about what to do next. Uh, and and uh, you know de- deadlines and things coming up. Uh, and if you're not, uh, write on your calendar November. Circle the entire month because sometime in November the book Gods of Thrones will come out, and I'm sure we'll have announcements for then. But I just want to say thank you for all your support on that. And let's get to the episode. We start off with uh, the Hound's trial by combat. Beric uses a flaming sword, which really spooks the Hound. However, the Hound manages to kill him anyway. And Arya, angered by the injustice, runs at the Hound to try and kill him. Until everyone notices that Beric has come back to life, and that kind of brings the party to an end. <laughs> he didn't just kill him; he like Rob Royed him. Like yeah. this guy was sh- from shoulder to sternum, just like kind of hinging open, like some kind of grisly accordion. I really don't know how this bringing someone back to life in that status works because it didn't seem like. I mean, at this point, his arm is like hanging on by a thread. Half yeah. his body is hanging on yeah. barely. I wonder if the Lord of Light like somehow sears the flesh shut or something because yeah like if he just came back to life it'd be some kind of hideous monkey paw yeah you know industrial accident looking thing walking around but uh and they make it clear that you know the scars stick with him right there's some physical healing that needs to take place here so i don't know if he's gonna be able to use that arm that's the thing when you're dealing with magic it's uh you know, especially Martin uh, in these early seasons really plays close to the vest about what exactly is possible. It's mm-hmm. it's very magic in the way like you hear about it in, in like like period you, the way like the ancients would talk about it. Like it's just shit that happened. And, like who can explain it? Like there's not a whole uh-huh. lot of like Brian Sanderson style. Well, he ingested this minute. Uh, copper dust and he add it with some mercury and then he swallowed some iron for good measure and presto changeo his bones re-knitted because that, it's just like you know he breathed breathed the, the lord's fire into him and he's back on his feet mm-hmm. done deal no more no more story yeah Lazarus called and or Jesus called and Lazarus came out of the grave like there you go <laughs> you don't even know how it happened just that it did yeah the power of R- lore compelled him 
Uh, I, I love it when Beric lights up his sword because oh, yeah. there's only one thing that scares the hound and Beric's got it. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's also the thing that did him in here because mm. uh, I think it weakened his sword mm. somehow. Could be. Uh, and allowed the hound to just slice right through it. Right. Right through it. Well, we see this, like, you know, this trying to recreate Lightbringers happened a couple times. It was, you know, Melisandre mm. when Stannis drew, uh, drew his sword from the burning idols of the Seven. Uh, you know, bear, uh, the backstory of Thoros of Myr is that he would get, you know, drunk and participate in the tourneys with his flaming sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, this is an attempt to rekindle that fable, fabled weapon that supposedly blazed of its own accord. Uh, but yeah, I never thought of it that way. That it could have been like a flaw in the expose a flaw in the metallurgy. <laughs> maybe uh, I, don't, I don't know how you know, but forging and blacksmithing on all that works. But it's a maybe. cool, it's a cool effect, and it is, and it it levels the playing field a bit. Yeah, because the hound is visibly frightened. Yeah, and he's got this kind of like Frankenstein monstrous quality as he's kind of like stomping through the fire and ah, raging and roaring like a bull, and the lighting where like this set just looks like it's lit from the sword and the participants yeah. own things being aflame like the <laughs> kind of reminds me of like some of those star wars scenes where yeah. the lightsaber duels yeah like uh, uh the between Bespin, dooku and and the bespin chamber and dooku right, and, yeah and anakin and and uh kenobi yeah uh pretty pretty cool pretty cool and, and the hound Arya, gets kissed by fire in this uh, Arya, he sure does <laughs> uh kissed with a fist by fire mm-hmm. Arya, her horror at like this turn of events yeah uh yeah, this is classic Game of Thrones. Like, you think the good guy's going to win, and mm-hmm. then they don't, and people react in horror. I don't know that I felt like the good guy was going to win in this scenario. I mean, the Hound is legendary. Yeah, but, like, I felt like in the narrative of the scene, like, there was mm-hmm. a clear uh, there was a clear momentum shift where Beric, like, it's almost like he needed to get yeah. rid of the shield and just, like, you know, have this on onslaught and just really push the the hound. And then when the hound's shield caught on fire, yeah. I'm like, you know, uh, I was a book reader at this point, so I already knew it was going to happen. <laughs> but, like, I thought they did a pretty good job of telling, yeah, but this is, this narratively, Beric is winning this fight until... Yeah, you know, sword sword broke. He broke, and his uh, his his whole upper half of his body almost separated at the shoulder. Yeah. All right. Then we go on to Tormund and Orrell. I guess is this guy's name. I don't know. He's he's the guy who controls the birds. Uh, questioning John to find out what he knows of the Night's Watch numbers and their whereabouts along the wall. Uh, Egret intervenes when things begin to turn violent, and then steals John's sword, leading him into a cave where she tests his loyalties by tempting him to break his Night's Watch vows by having sex with her. Mm-hmm. And it works. And afterward, they talk about their former lovers, in John's case, none, uh, and take a bath together. I guess maid is their word for virgin. Yeah. Judging by contextual clues here. Yeah. I think, and she's kind of poking fun at John's girlish ways, I think. Yeah, uh, her yeah. Mind. His soft ways. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, They're harder up there in the north. Before I say anything else, I want to because I remember uh, I remember raging against this in the old podcast I was on. There is a hot tub thirty feet from his wilding camp, mm-hmm. and only John and Egret use it. Like I feel as though there would have been a mile long door. There'd be people pounding at the door after your five minutes are up. This whole like yeah, oh we all want to stay in the cave forever, but we got to take our <laughs> turn. Like what? I mean, I get that they're like wild and free and they're tough, but like mm-hmm. they 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 
clearly don't completely skew creature comfort because Egret knew about it. It's like, yeah, let's get naked. This is fun. This feels better. This feels better than huddling in animal skins outside in the freezing cold. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I feel like that the, when they jumped in the pool, Tormund should have been there the whole time, like chomping on a chicken leg, being like, <laughs> just watching. For, Thanks dinner and a show. You know, <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. like the, this. The, this should be a bunch of just a bunch of wildlings and loincloth when you pan out, just just lounging and watching John and e- and Egret's like oh, you thought. You thought we'd have this cave to ourselves? You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> uh, but yeah, come on. Come on. This thing would be a That's destination. Fair. Yeah. Uh, she really is just taken by what Jon does with his mouth here. Some some pleasant things. Although I think low-key the most shocking thing in this scene is mm-hmm. that Egret has fucked a thin. Yeah. Egret has fucked a thin. Yeah. Like, we... be careful. They'll do something less pleasant with their mouths <laughs> than John did. They're not going in for the Lord's kiss. No. Uh, they're into that vor shit you read about on the dark sites parts <laughs> of the internet. Um, I'm, I was shocked by that. I also thought it was interesting, John trying to find the right place to draw the line between being honest with his, you know, uh, with his mission and, like, trying to dissuade them from butchering yeah. everybody at Castle Black, because he's given... You know, everything he said about the castles, which ones were ba- manned, uh, is true, which I think also the Wildlings would know. But mm-hmm. he's clearly lying about the thousand, you know, Black Brothers hiding out at uh, Castle Black. Uh, but, you know, I don't think John would, you know, like, like it, it, you got to ask yourself, like, when would John put stand, you know, when would John draw the line between his mission and, like, you know, what's counterproductive and assaulting Castle mm-hmm. Black. So, like, by the time the Wildlings found out he's full of shit. Mm. He'd probably turn turn cloak anyway, but it's, it's clearly a constant... it's not his vows. Like that's not the line, right? 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 And you know, I'm sure Corn Halfhand would look down from the old god's heaven, and be like, "You, you, you fucked that wilding boy, you fucker, <laughs> you, fu- you, you, you kill me, but you won't fuck just because oh, you fuck your yeah. mouth." Um, but it sets up a lot of tension because we know, or we suspect rather, that Jon Snow is not, you know going to just become a wildling but he is getting in pretty deep emotionally with this wildling girl mm-hmm. and she has no problems with assaulting castle black mm-hmm. how is that going to play out yeah good question uh so we go over to the hound who's pissed that the brotherhood won't give back the money from his coin purse uh they hood him and they lead him away to his freedom they they honor the trial by combat result let him go Mm-hmm. That's how the legend of Robin Hood started. They they robbed these brigands and they put hoods on them and they kicked them out of the cave, hmm. and it all got okay. corrupted in in history. And you know when Westeros got declared the United Kingdom, it's just you know that's part of the part of the historical record that got eschewed. They do have an archer, pretty good one at they that. They do, they do, they do. Uh, then Jamie is delivered to Roose, who treats his prisoners or prisoner. I think at this point, I think Brienne is is freed. Uh, treats the prisoner with more respect than uh, this other, I don't know, the guy who cut his hand off did. <laughs> yeah, Locke. Locke, Who's yes. Uh, Jamie asks about his family, and Roos toys with him for a second before telling him that they're alive and well, and then he sends the ill Jamie to Kyburn for treatment. Yeah, I think it's interesting uh, that like Locke rides up, and he is not under the impression that Roos Bolton would have a single problem with anything he did, mm-hmm. and there's like a little bit of a cockeyed, like, the hell are you going on about what as Roos is just like putting on this elaborate show of how courtly he's being and how much respect he's going to um uh consider give to his uh, captors and you know i think you're supposed to notice that 
I'll put mm-hmm. it that way. These are things that w- uh, that should be noticed as we're progressing through uh, progressing through the uh, the series. All right, we go to Kyburn, who's working on Jamie. Uh, he tells him that Jamie uh, that he's no longer a maester because of his bold experiments, as he puts it. Uh, Jamie refuses to let him amputate the rest of his arm, so Kyburn cuts away what flesh has rotted as Jamie screams in pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just That's exactly what happened. Unsettling scene here. <laughs> yeah. Th- yeah. There's not much to say about it other than, I, I guess, this idea that Kyburn is no longer a maester. Yeah. Because um, they called him a maester earlier in the, the show. Right. Um, we find out that he's not exactly that. Yeah. What, what you know, what kind of expand you, you get a little bit of... They do a good job of the lighting here. Uh, Kyburn has got, like, the way that he sits in the shaft of light really illuminates and makes his eyes look almost bleached out and pale, like Hmm. very almost vampiric. And then the way his eyes gleam as he's hurting Jamie, you know, like kind of like you don't know the Uh full story here, but there's something spooky and maybe uh, a violation of Hippocratic Oath about this this guy, this former maester who was stripped of his chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, like, you're going to cut away still living flesh and then pour boiling wine onto it. What? I know that this is something that gets uh, brought up in feedback, and we might as well consider it now. Uh, why do you think Jamie was dead set against taking milk of the poppy? I, I almost feel like it's some sort of punishment yeah. to himself, but I don't know exactly what for. He's doing penance? Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure. That's honestly. one of the things like I, I thought that maybe he's this is he, he feels like he deserves all this. Mm-hmm. Uh and he's he's taking he's he's uh he's using this pain to kind of like purge himself of these other negative feelings. It could be that he still might want to try and escape and he doesn't want his senses dulled by the milk of the poppy. Um you know, the other thing is, like, I, you know, Milk of the Poppy is essentially opium, and I wonder if he suspects, like, that it'd be very easy to kill him with an overdose. But then again, like, he's such a valuable political prisoner, that would be foolish. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they don't really – it doesn't seem like Jamie's a type that would, you know, do away with unnecessary pain. I think this is also a reaction to Brienne being like, you big wuss. Like, you <laughs> have just had this little bitty problem, and you're ready to throw yourself a pity party. So he's like, okay, I'm going to try on all the pain I, I can get out of this situation. Hmm. Um, but it's an interesting choice for him to do that. Is he going to become a masochist? Is that what's happening here? Could be. Could be. Uh, is Brienne into that kind of thing? Uh, we'll have to see. I don't know. Uh, I, did we mention the fact that, like, of Bruce Bolton just mercilessly fucking with Jamie about the, the fate of King's Landing and his sister? I haven't really mentioned it. I mean, I I said that he, you know he toys with it. I mean, it's like uh, it, it's like one of those um, you know E channel shows where it's like you know your sister did not what's the Jerry Springer not survive episode? the sack and rape of King's Landing, which didn't happen because your father rode the raid to save the day until like gee, it's like it's you know he really stretched it out, really yeah. stretched out the moment. No, he does. He does. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's not He's not going to torture Jamie physically, but mentally, eh, Yeah, psychological eh. torture, eh, yeah. okay. Why not? All right, so Cersei goes to Littlefinger to ask for his help in dealing with the Tyrell threat and tells him essentially to do a better job than he did finding Arya Stark, mm. uh, which, you know, we'll put Littlefinger into motion later in this episode. Um, uh, yep, and also not that, but, like, just to kind of look under the dirt Look under the house, house Tyrell's fingernails. See if you can dig up any dirt, yeah. which uh, ends up manufacturing. Mm-hmm. 
And then Elena sits down with Tyrion, who asks her to scale back the wedding a bit to spare the coffers during the, the time of war they're in. Right. Uh, Elena lists the ways, the many ways, that the Tyrells have supported King's Landing and then tells Tyrion that the royal wedding is meant to distract the small folk, not... Not uh, and and that's the purpose of extravagance here. Right. Uh, she then agrees to pay for half the wedding herself, which satisfies Tyrion. Yeah, and I love how she just effortlessly keeps him off balance throughout the yeah. conversation. Mm-hmm. Like she comes here and she demands figs so she can have her bowel movement, which like blows <laughs> Tyrion's mind. And then uh-huh. Pod starts pouring a Tyrion-sized wine glass, and she's <laughs> oh, like, "Oh, Tyrion Squire has a heavy hand with the wine." Imagine right? That. Yeah. So she's she's already she, now he's kind of feeling apologetic about that, and then uh-huh. he tries to hit her with how extravagant the wedding, and she's like, "Look at all these millions of bushels, and so and so forth." And yeah. You know, here I expected this epic, you know, sharp-tongued winch, and I find a brow-beaten bookkeeper. Like, she just... And then, uh, without, with very little negotiation, gives him half of what he wants. I was kind of surprised by that at the end. Yeah. Because it seems... I, it's almost like she's just having fun, even though she's determined to, you know, help where she can. Yeah. Uh I wonder if it's to sell the plot. Like, she doesn't want... Like, she's going to, you know make Tyrion feel like he worked with it, but also give, be so generous that it's not going to be something that Tywin is like, oh, you know, starts to suspe- suspect that they're not completely on his side or, or whatnot. Right, she's standing her ground on having the extravagant wedding, right. but giving up a little to, right. you know, to keep that. Because I think that she could have drove, drove a much harder bargain mm-hmm. because she's in the right. Like, look at all, we rode your rescue. Without us, you guys wouldn't even, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. Uh, I could have just wait for King's Landing to be sacked and have my daughter marry the next person that's going to sit on the, the Iron Throne. How I many guess it would those... be Stannis, and that wouldn't work, but... <laughs> yeah. You know? Probably not. Uh, yeah, who would she... Because Stannis already married. Renly's dead. Robert's dead. Uh, Shireen is not going to marry Marjorie and make her a queen for sure. Maybe uh, yeah, maybe that's why they yeah. backed that whole... I, yeah, I wonder if that, that's what the, the complex... That came into the complex calculations of the Tyrell... That backing mm. Stannis would, yeah, Stannis would be grateful and and like recognize their zeal loyalty, but then what? Yeah, he's already got a wife. Yeah, like and, getting married into the royal family and joining that that dynasty of uh, Tywin seemed like a much more attractive offer. Yeah. Uh, so Gendry tells Arya that he's going to be the Brotherhood's blacksmith, and he's sticking around with him. Uh, Arya is sad, but when Gendry explains that he'd much rather be free to make his own choices than serve Rob or any other man, Arya offers to be his family, but Gendry tells her that uh, that can never happen because she'd be his lady, not his family. Yeah. Uh, she's she's highborn. He's not. He's a bastard, so mm. not exactly family material. Right. Not this even is Jon Snow was really your family if you talk to your, lord, your, your lady <laughs> right. mother. It's a pretty sad scene. I mean, it's... Because Arya is sad that she she may not even have a family anymore, right? right. Her father's been killed. Her brothers are in the wind. Uh, her her oldest brother and mother are off to war. Yeah. They might be killed. Like she doesn't know who her family is. She's looking for one. Her sister is essentially a hostage. Yeah, in a hostile in. So like when Gendry says, "Hey, I can't be whatever it is you want me to be." Yeah. Uh, specifically, any part of your family, it's it's kind of crushing to her. Yeah, and I, I thought it was pretty moving because uh, Maisie really turned up the like the 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 cute wounded quality when she's like i can be your family and her voice is kind of breaking and he gently yeah. says you'd be my lady 
Mm-hmm. Man, that's a great that's a great scene. Underrated amongst all the other high drama in the episode, <laughs> but she's really yeah. bringing the thunder here. Uh, let's get to some high drama. Lord Karstark breaks into the cells uh, where the Lannister boys are being kept and kills them both. And then when Rob finds out, he sends Lord Karstark to the dungeon, orders the rest of his men hanged uh, while he talks with consults with his his posse here. Edmure suggests that they bury the boys and don't let the word of their deaths get out. Rob believes he has to kill Karstark for the the honor, essentially to honor justice here. Uh, everyone else believes that would be a huge mistake that would drive the Karstarks from his army, and Rob decides he's going to stick to his principles, and he beheads Lord Karstark. In a scene yeah. that I think is unlike other beheadings we've seen uh-huh. uh, in Game of Thrones, like Ned's beheading, there's a, t- a shitload of fanfare, and rightfully mm. so. Mm. He's an important person in Westeros, but uh, this one is sort of underplayed, and I like it. Yeah, and it's in the downpouring rain. It really shows that this is like not a triumphant occasion for anyone. Yeah. Like even when he gives him the last word, uh, Karstark uses the devastating, like you know, kill me and be cursed by our own laws. Like you know, mm-hmm. the, the history of the Starks and the Karstarks are they are the same family. The Karstarks became the Starks when they were bequeathed this uh, fortress to Carhold. Uh, and they put that as part of their names, but they are they are kin. So mm-hmm. Rob is literally a kinslayer, which is one of the more accursed things you can be in the the weird religions of this country uh, of, of this nation. And uh, then you're no king of mine. I mean, I think Rob realized that his mom and Talisa were going to be right. That as soon as their lord renounced him as a king, yeah. Uh, and I think he also starting to feel. I'd say that he's starting to feel like he's the, the 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 that the war is lost, but then he has that kind of triumphant scene where he gets the idea to assault Casterly Rock at the end. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they both have points here. Yeah. Uh, everyone's got a point, you know. Carstark uh, has a point when he says, "We like I killed your enemies." Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not treason. Rob, you know, views it as treason because he went against Rob's wishes, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't disobey the king without it being treason. Yeah. And, uh, I think... and then all of his posse has has a really good point about the Karstarks leaving them if if he does this. But but Rob has that part of Ned in him, right? That, right. that respect for honor. Right. Um, and this is what honor requires of him. This is what justice requires. I just... I don't think that Ned would have broken a marriage alliance. Yeah, I agree. The same way that... I mean, that's the thing where he doesn't quite have like he's mm-hmm. got ned's like foolishness and and stupidity and and kind of blindness to like the politics and you know kind of taking the temperature of a room but he also doesn't quite have that like iron core of of willpower and that oak like integrity and righteousness you know with the exception of you know ed ned supposedly cheating on his wife while he was off at war mm-hmm. um well i think there's you know there's definitely a fine line between honor and justice and righteousness right like all of those things are not necessarily one and the same and they can be at odds many times and i I feel like that's where rob is is himself you know honor demanded that he marry the walter frey girl right um he chose to go with his heart on that Mm -hmm. and break break that honor but uh here justice demands something of him right Mm -hmm. he thinks And, and and he and he's got a choice to make between honoring the the kinship with the Karstarks yeah. or meeting out justice here. Yeah. 
And he's trying to draw the bright line of, well, you murdered children. Right. I think Karstark... But I don't think it's that easy. I don't think it's no, that simple. No, I, I think Karstark engineered this cleverly because he should have kept Karstark in prison and as a hostage to make sure that his house stays loyal to him. That had been a smart play, and that's exactly what he did to his mother. Mm-hmm. Like, when his mother defied him and broke the law and let go, you know, Jamie Lannister unilaterally, he in prison. It seems like that's kind of, like, over now. But, like, I think Karstark was wanting to see, and I may, I don't know whether he expected him, because it seems like he did expect him to, like, oh, he's going to scold me and then, you know, send me on my way. But mm-hmm. he's also saying it with such disrespect, I think he was trying to provoke the other reaction, because now he wants to either have the satisfaction of proving that this young wolf is soft mm-hmm. or bring the young wolf down. Yeah. Because he's had it up to here with his, you know... Distraction, like that's what Rob. That's that's Rob's problem. He's just he doesn't, you know, like like why are we here? We were here to save your father, or then we are here to avenge your father and the North sense of honor and propriety. And you are chasing tail. Yeah, that is ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like I really hate people to defend Rob <laughs> and that because that decision just, it's, is it's, impossible it's, to defend. It's indefensible. Yeah. Like you, you know, you 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 could have avoided making the marriage compact with Walter Frey. And you could have built a fucking bridge and gone around or taken time, whatever, but you needed to get across. So once you did that, you either keep your word to the people who are your bannermen or why are people your bannermen? Yeah. And there's like really not much. Def- you can defend it like on human terms, but leadership and king terms? No, no, no. no. And, and that's Rob's. I, I feel like that's Rob's biggest fault is he follows his heart a little too much. And he's a kid. Because like, look at... <laughs> I just think this would have gone very differently. And in fact, it did go very differently um, when kids weren't involved. Uh, when, you know, his mom releases Jamie, mm-hmm. she essentially gets a slap on the wrist, yeah. sent to time out for a little bit, and now she's back. Karstark makes, I don't even want to call it a mistake, but he makes the choice to kill these children, mm-hmm. which I very much think reminds Rob of his brothers, mm. who, right. for all he knows, are dead right now. And right. and probably at the hand, just like someone, someone like Karstark. So... Right. Like, that's the thing in my mind that pushes him from, like, the slap on the wrist, scolding, mm-hmm. to the beheading, mm-hmm. is is realizing the parallel there. It still is. Or maybe not even realizing it intellectually, yeah, but yeah, in yeah, his yeah, heart he feels it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still an emotional decision that a king should be above, but... Yeah, sure. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. Like, I, I don't... That's Rob's I mean, flaw. I understand Rob, but I don't condone it. Right. That's the that's the key. Like I can understand. I try to be empathetic and understand where people are coming from, but you know, it's like okay, I get you came by all this honestly, but still you can't do that, man. Yeah. You can't excuse it. All right, we go over to Arya asking Thoros what they're going to do with her. He says they're going to take her to her brother and collect a reward, which sounds an awful lot like her to uh as being a hostage essentially. Uh Beric explains to Arya how he keeps coming back to life via Thoros and the Lord of Light. And he says it's getting harder to come back, and he feels like he's losing a bit of himself every time. Arya asks Thoros if he can bring back a man without a head, which, of course, he can't. She's talking about her father there, in case anybody missed that. Uh, She's having to a Thoros pretty didn't. sick Dr. Seuss rhyme. Can you bring him back without a head? Can you yeah. bring him back if his name is Ned? <laughs> <laughs> How dead is dead, she said. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, I, uh, do you want to say anything about this, the Lord of the Light? I really like, I mean, there's a lot of, like, really clever wordplay with the whole, like, yo, so I'm a hostage. Ah, you are, you know, you are and you aren't. Uh, It's more than I am. And 
I, I really liked that. And then, you know, like this this stuff with the it's given the backstory of Barrick and, you know, reminds me to la- the reminds us the last time that we saw him, he was being sent forth to bring the, the mountain to justice. And you know, in fact, the mountain brought him to death, but, and also the idea that like Thoros is just as mystified that this stuff is working because Thoros is a mm-hmm. failed priest. Yeah. He was sent here to convert Bobby B. Bobby B converted him to the religion of tits and wine. And he's just been like this failed. It'd be like a televangelist that actually faith healed someone. Like uh, what a like a like a, a mind fuck that would be for them. Like I didn't even believe this is real. And what the uh, I, I really like this backstory that they do effortlessly in a single scene. Mm-hmm. Then we go over to Stannis' wife, Selyse, who is praying to the Lord of the Light when Stannis shows up. Uh, Selyse t- tells him not to give up and that he'll be victorious eventually. Stannis confesses that he has laid with the red woman. He's been kissed by fire, <laughs> but she already knows because Melisandre has told her everything. Uh, she's happy that Melisandre was able to give him the son that she couldn't. And this scene, what the fuck are these fetuses in jars, man? I, I mean, obviously, they're, it seems, based on context, they're failed uh, efforts to give Stannis a son. Right. Stillborn, uh, but or... why is she keeping them around? What <sighs> other than really sweet alien resurrection style decorations I, for this drab ass room? I feel like the showrunners, I feel like the double D's went a little too far to make Celise creepy and weird. Yeah, like, they don't need to amp up everything to eleven because this is not this is not in the books. Um, hmm. So like. I don't know. Like, I guess they're like, well, Cersei talked about losing a child, so we can't have someone else do that and be sympathetic. So let's like make sure that everyone knows that this woman's not just like a deluded brainwashed cult member, but she's also like emotionally disturbed. I think it's more effective to play to portray people that are deluded and brainwashed as normal folk because it's more horrifying. And I think that's how it really that's how it actually happens. Like. Yeah, sure. Sometimes, yeah. you know, cults and, you know, religious swindlers take advantage of people with emotional or mental disturbances. More often, mm-hmm. they just they just get you all twisted up. And I think that's scarier than someone that's already got a screw loose, you know, just, ha- you know, having their machine get shaken apart. So, but yeah, just a whole, like, it's already creepy, the whole, you know, when I found out that you guys had fucked, I wept with joy. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and she gave you a son, which in context of what we know what that son is, is really horrifying. Yeah. I don't think we need to pan to the jars of formaldehyde full of fetuses, like the fucking Fields no. Museum. It's, yeah. I Like I said, I'm not a fan of them adding that embellishment, but I know why they did. <laughs> okay. I understand, but I don't condone. Fair. Uh, so then Stannis goes to see his daughter, Shireen. Shireen, Shireen, Green. who asks how the battle went, and ex- she's very excited to see her friend Davos, and he tries to break the news gently that Davos won't be coming to see her because he put him in a cell for treason. Uh, which, yeah, we we know Shireen doesn't really care. She's gonna she's gonna head downstairs. I do like that how Stannis can't even sugarcoat it for his poor daughter afflicted mm-hmm. with dragon scale. Yeah, no, it's uh. Is this the first time we've seen Shireen? 
I think so, yeah. Okay, I thought so, I wasn't sure. And how, like, you know, she's, like, almost in this, like, Quasimodo type of cell that she's locked away, no one can see. And even her mother, like, that's another thing that I thought was uh, a little much, her being, like, you know, you you got this deformed child and she's, she's, uh, I don't know whether Mel Saunders has been talking shit about her or what, but, like, she's seen as, like, some kind of abomination and... It's really sad, but the, but then even knowing all that, Stannis is still like, oh well, your only friend that gives you all these cool gifts and make sure make it a point to visit you beside me. I, yeah, he's in a dungeon because he's a fucking traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Pretty pretty rough shit. Also, uh, detail the song that she's singing uh, in this episode and through the credits is uh, in the books. There is a fool called Patchface uh, called that because uh, he's got like a. Uh, like a checkerboard pattern tattooed on his face. Mm-hmm. And he uh, was a very clever, nimble lad that survived the shipwreck. And that shipwreck, like, robbed him of his wits. And all he does is babble these, like, sing-song stories that have, like, these very contradictory things. Like, under the sea, the, what was it? The, the birds have scales and the fish have wings. And, you know, but... There's a couple of theories that if you want to get into it where they analyze these the song that Patchface is singing and they a lot of people think it's the key to the end of Martin like that that like this is all <laughs> foreshadowing things that are going to happen in like this big mm-hmm. apocalyptic ending. Well, we'll see, but that's uh, you know, non-spoiler if you if you want to dig on that some more there's you know, you can you can search for Patchface's song and and go to town on it. Things get weird in cthulhu <laughs> Yeah. I'd say Davos did better with the shipwreck than Patchface did. Yeah, he he didn't turn into a, a you know a gibbering pile of <laughs> motley drool. No. All right, then we go to one of the highlights of the episode. It's Brienne bathing. Uh, that's not that's not the best oh, part. Yeah, yeah. Gwendolyn <laughs> Christie's back muscular backside. <laughs> yeah, uh, muscular buttocks. Uh, Jamie shows up to do the same, and he starts in with his usual digs until Brienne gets pissed and he apologizes to her and when she, when he sees this look of disdain that he's seen on so many people before uh he tells the story of how he got the name kingslayer which the, the short version is king eris got paranoid that his enemies were all around him placed wild placed caches of wildfire all over the city and was going to set them ablaze when robert baratheon and tywin lannister sacked king's landing so jamie had to kill a king and his pyromancer to protect the entire city and after he tells the story he collapses yeah. It's a great scene. By what right does the wolf judge the lion? Fantastic, and, yeah. From uh, Co- Coaster Waldo. Yeah, you. I just so Jamie's really frustrating because um, we, you know, we've heard tell. We might have talked this in the non-spoiler section. I know we talked about it in the spoiler section, but you know, you hear tell from Ned's perspective that when he came into the throne room after the Baratheon forces arrived to kind of secure King's Landing, they find Jamie kind of like. Uh, irreverently sitting upon the Iron Throne. Like, now what? And it's hard to square that image that Ned has with the story that Jamie tells. Because there's, like, mm-hmm. you know, the story, like, maybe if Jamie had tried harder, maybe, you know, like, what caused Jamie to make that miscalculation? Like, like you know, instead of, like, realizing, like, you know, he's arguably the hero of King's Landing, but he turns into the Kingslayer and like attempted a serper just by, I don't know. And a lot of people, like I, I read a lot. A lot of people say it's like, oh, it's just this Jamie's core arrogance. But like that's not what's coming out in this scene. So then you start mm-hmm. this question, like how much of this was Jamie thinking in the moment? How much of this was him like 
thinking back on the moment and being rueful now that he's lost his hand. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of like really a lot a lot of depth here to, to the, the character and trying to synthesize this as what you already know of his of, of uh, and have been told about it. Yeah, um, I I do feel like this is some honest uh, honesty from mm-hmm. Jamie here. Um, I don't think this story is entirely fabricated. Right. You know, he's he's not. Uh, essentially, that is to say, there's a good side to Jamie that mm. often gets ignored because of the way he acts, his arrogance, right. um, the reputation he has from this event. Uh, and I I really enjoyed, you know, it, it's, it's partially down to just the straight-up performance from this actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also really enjoyed seeing a different side of Jamie. Not right. not not the side of Jamie that we see at the beginning of this scene where mm-hmm. he starts to dig at Brian. You know, that's what he's always doing. Right, right. He's he's just playing a game. What does it here it's there, def- there are no games. It's it's uh, defense through a strong offense. Like he right. always attacks other people and gets them off balance. So then when they are mad at him or dismissive or offended, well he's given them good reason. Sure. Not just like, you know, whereas if he comes in with a neutral affect and he sees these sneers and looks then he knows it's because of you know all the shit he's done in his past so mm-hmm. it's a way to like deflect all that um but yeah like and the fact that like when he really tells a story where he tried to give like leal counsel to the king and be yeah. like you don't trust my father he's up to no good you need to peacefully mm-hmm. surrender before this goes all pear-shaped and then you know the king the pyromancer this plot the you know, essentially burn everyone alive and turn himself into a dragon. It's madness. And he said, you know, like you, like if your Rinley had asked you to do this, would you have kept your oaths? And there are yeah. so many oaths. You got to uh, obey and respect your father. You have to obey and respect the king. What happened? It's it's a really, really great scene. Uh, I also liked the initial reaction where, you're, you know, Jamie uses his because, you know, Jamie's aware that he's a beautiful man. And that, you know, Brienne is kind of an awkward lady, and he uses his body to kind of set her off balance. Mm-hmm. But also, he's attractive, so, like, Brienne's kind of, like, intrigued. And then when he insults her, and she, like, rushes him naked like a, like a fucking bull moose, and he catches a look at her, but I think there's something, like, you know, it, he's not apologizing just because he realizes shit. I think he's... You know, there's there's also like an awakening. I don't know. This might be because I'm a little bit of a Brianna Jamie shape <laughs> shipper. I feel like there's a little bit of awakening to the fact that like this is I've been mocking this woman and talking about what a great brute she is, but there's also something about her. Hmm. Uh, there's something about Brian, uh, and I don't know. I I, I see it. I. So there you go. Saying if Jamie stood up in that scene, we they'd have to cut away. There'd be yeah, <laughs> even HBO would have to right. cut away. He he could he's he's uh, sword slinging <laughs> no hands. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's the one thing it's the one thing HBO can't show an erect male yeah. penis. Yeah, uh, stars has broken through that barrier. Stars, you oh, watch yeah? American God season one, erect male penises from hell to breakfast. <laughs> All right, but HBO, it's, it's not thrown. television. It's not they. They are they are shy of the erect male penis. Uh, kind of adding on to what you said about the oaths, I think this episode also plays with that quite a bit because in this scene he also says that Varys was counseling Eris. Right, he mm-hmm. was. He was also on the side of, hey, don't do this. Right. Um, Varys is one of those people who survived through the rebellion and served the king still. But when you look at what Barristan tells Jorah mm-hmm. later on, that, that Robert never trusted him because right. he 
you know, killed some of his friends in battle, right. and he served the other king. It was like, I, I wonder how, th- there's that conflict there, right? Like, how far was Varys willing to go to protect his his king over the realm, right? Mm. Clearly about as far as Jaime. So whatever you think of Varys' decisions in those, that moment, I think you also have to attribute to Jaime. That's interesting because I, I was, if I if I hear what you're saying right, you're a little bit, because I thought this was further evidence that maybe uh, Varys has been telling the truth all along about him just wanting to serve the realm. Like, you know, uh, it could be, yeah. a peaceful negotiation, this resolution, rather than opening up the gates to Tywin Lannister's forces, I think would have been better. Like, the king, the sack of King's yeah. Landing is, like, legendary for, like, how execution-y and rapey it all got. Right. Uh, especially when it came to, like, the royal family. So mm-hmm. I think Varys, you know, rather than seeing everyone suffer, uh, would have... Ra- yeah, I, I feel like... Yeah, his loyalties are seemingly more to the realm than the king. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I kind of view, like, him being... his Jamie's thoughts being lined up with Varys's as proving that Jamie was also more in line and that this is truth that yeah, Jamie yeah, yeah. is speaking. Okay, I'll buy that. As opposed to f- some fabrication to make himself look good. I'll buy that. Uh, all right, anyway, we move on to Shireen visiting Davos in the dungeons, and she brings him a book, but it won't do him any good because he can't read. So Shireen offers to teach him and starts with the title of the book, uh, History of Aegon the Conqueror and His Conquest of Westeros. It's a good word, a good title, because like there's already two words. You, you get you get con you get con- conquer, and you're <laughs> right. halfway through the and uh-huh. eggs the other one. Uh, it's a very sweet scene because uh, Davos will you know he cares enough about Shireen to not make her feel ill about her father to not like you know because there's there's two sides of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously he could have been like, no, princess, I tried to save your father. It's the red wolf. But he doesn't try because, you know, what good would it do? He doesn't think that he's getting himself out of this pit. So, like, might as well leave the child's love for her father intact. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was I thought it was sweet. And the fact that Shireen doesn't really understand that, you know, this guy is going to die by her father's hand um, and that he is allowing her to teach him to read, even though he doesn't see much of a future for himself. I thought it was all. Is all very sweet and fucking i love davos <laughs> yeah it's He's interesting Dav- davos fate here sort of parallels jamie's in a little bit in a little way too because like treason is such a nebulous term because it's loyalty based right like right. it's what what actions are treasonous if they're in service to the king because that's what davos thought he was doing when he tries to kill the red woman when he advises stannis not to take her he thought he was doing the right thing there. Can that right. be treason if you think you're doing the right thing? I mean, yeah, because like you, I think you can. The king probably judges what treason is. Absolutely, and, but that's what I mean. It's it's so nebulous. It yeah. can mean whatever he wants, and it's loyalty right. based. So right. whether you're trying to do a good thing or not, it's all how the king perceives it. Right. It's like you know, Karstark might say that I wasn't being disloyal either, but right. he's still going to lose his head. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut right from that title over to Danny. Uh, well, actually, Jorah, he's recounting the, the siege of Pike and uh, his knighting ceremony where he nearly pissed on the king's boots he had to go so bad uh, to an entertained barrister who explains that he's spent his life honoring vows to kings who didn't deserve his loyalty. And now he wants to know what it's like to fight for someone he believes in. Uh, when he asks Jorah if he, she, he believes in her with all my heart because he's... <laughs> Yeah, he he looks over. Got a perhaps inappropriate uh, uh, belief in in Danny. <laughs> yeah, and this kind of is is a precursor to 
more important scene with them, those two that we'll get to here in a minute. But uh, Danny asked the Unsullied if they have chosen their leader, and a man named Grey Worm comes forward, and she's taken aback at their names. She can't believe how that they would keep their slave names here, and tells them, "Look, take any other name except for your slave names." But Grey Worm says, "Now that brings me pride because it was my name the day you freed me." Right. That's who I am now. So uh, the, it's an interesting look. The, the, the book offers a, a detail about the uns, uh, the unsullied that uh, it's actually worse than that. Each day they draw their name out of a bucket from pebbles that have like a random <laughs> adjective that just and noun. So confusing well, to everyone involved. Right, this is Martin going too far because like yeah. how the fuck do you have a military hierarchy where everyone has n- different names every day? It's like I understand you're dehumanizing these and they don't they don't have identities and whatnot, but like. Give him a number or it's something. It's not practical. No, it's yeah. not. It's not. not so, like, all. I actually thought it's uh, it's a little bit more realistic that mm-hmm. they would give them a dehumanized name, but then you keep that. So, you know, when they say report to Grey Worm, you're like, was right. that Grey Worm on Tuesday or Grey Worm? Yeah. Yeah. Report, report tomorrow to Grey Worm. I don't know who that's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, though, how, like, the, I, I liked how Grey Worm stated it. Like, you know, the name... I was born with was cursed and I was sold into slavery and I came of, it came of nothing. The name that I bear now is the name that, uh, that, that I had when you free me. Mm-hmm. So pretty, pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. I did think it's, I did get a chuckle out of their elaborate, like Batman begins esque, you know, shifting maze pattern around. Like when she mm-hmm. says, who is your leader? And they do all this. Like, did you guys plan that? Yeah. Like, do you, do you always keep your guy in the middle until they someone says, can I speak to your leader? And you do the, like, Rubik's Cube <laughs> routine and form uh-huh. a shielded hallway to him? Like, They're very well trained. Pretty, pretty, pretty. A lot of choreography with these guys is what I'm saying. So then we get to probably the most important scene with Barristan and Jorah, uh, where Barristan tells Jorah that Robert wanted Danny dead. And he never sat on the King's Small Council because Robert didn't trust him. After the rebellion, uh, they talk about the challenges that Danny faces in subduing the Seven Kingdoms. Barristan labels Jorah's reputation reputation in the kingdoms as one of those challenges, which understandably offends Jorah, who says, "Look, I know you want me to leave, but I, you, you don't give commands here. You're not the Lord Commander. I'll leave when the Queen tells me to, and not a moment before." I don't disagree with Selmy's, uh, you know, Sir Barristan's logic sure but it does seem fairly self-serving this early yeah like jordan's like he says you only joined us a few days ago just chill yeah, this is while. something you do like when they're about to embark to westeros and you start talking about how you're going to win loyalty and all that kind of stuff and like do we yeah. really want a, a man who's a disgraced slaver you know at the head of this former slave army it seems like a you know propaganda coup for the other side that's going to hurt your chances of winning hearts and minds like yeah maybe maybe uh barristan should have just pumped the brakes a little bit but yeah he's not barristan... sir pump the brakes he's sir barristan the bold <laughs> so i guess it's yeah. in is his character and he has been from day one i feel like right. this is nothing new from him yeah yeah he comes in and questions everyone's loyalty and sure. thinks he's got the key to it all Um, right plus like i mean you can see like there's this arrogance of this because like i think i think uh sir barrison probably does have a little bit of disrespect towards sir jorah and Mm -hmm. the idea that like i was a king like you know i was a kingsguard and being a kingsguard meant some something you piece of shit yeah uh and what i've never been a slaver and exactly i know your reputation i've been up earnest and upright in my entire life and i've never fallen and there's only this boy this shit boy king that dismissed me 
Yeah, he, he, I'm not saying he doesn't have a reason, but also mm-hmm. probably been better. Of course, again, he says I had no taste for politics. Yeah. Um, All right. But we... yeah, the other thing you're supposed to understand here is if you recall back in season one, you know, Sir Jorah was uh, Varys's man inside that was infiltrating Danny's camp and was right. complicit with like keeping the you know, them informed on her whereabouts and was kind of part of the murder plot until he decided to switch sides and portray. So he, there's this, this desperate, like prodding to Barristan to see like what he knows. And if he knows that Mm. deep, dark secret that he has, and there's this, and you know, he kind of relaxes a little bit and rolls tough on him once he, once, you know, Sir Barristan to his satisfaction said, no, I I wasn't on a King's council because the King didn't trust me and I hated politics anyway. So, yeah, and I think if he had that card, he would have played it by now. Mm-hmm. Being being bold. Uh, so the card Starks have abandoned Rob. It, it all came true. Uh, Talisa tries to help, but doesn't even know where they are on the map. So Rob decides to educate her a little, and while he's doing that, he has an idea. He's going to petition Walder Frey to give him the troops he needs to take Casterly Rock from the Lannisters. Because uh, he can't attack him at home, and he can't force them to come out and meet him on the battlefield where they're weak. So scoop out Casterly Rock. And he not? doesn't want to go back to Winterfell because, as he points out, if they retake yeah. Winterfell and, win- and and Winter comes, Winter falls, uh, his men will be, you know, feel like they accomplished something. They'll be have their bellies full and they'll be with their families and they'll be warm and like, ah, ooh, ah don't want to march south through, you know, dozens of feet of snow. Fuck this. So, yeah, it's uh, this is kind of desperation because if this doesn't work, then and. The linchpin in his 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 uh, plan is to get Walder Frey on his side uh-huh. and to have him join. <laughs> He's already scorned. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I know I didn't want to take your daughter, but I will take your troops. Yeah, we'll take all your. I troops will take a and lot of troops, please. And, yeah, I'll take all that. So then we go to Sansa asking Marjorie when she can marry Loras, whom they're watching spar. Uh, a squire named Oliver helps Loras all the way out of his armor and into his bed. And afterward, it's revealed that Oliver works for Littlefinger, and Oliver informs him that Sansa is going to be married to Loras. So Littlefinger goes to see Sansa, who seems to be wavering on the idea of going home just yet, now that she's been uh, promised a husband. Yeah. Uh, Littlefinger, it's interesting in this scene. I I love the, the position he's in, mm-hmm. because he thought he had kind of won Sansa over. Marjorie and Elena came in and made her this promise, which tempted her, and now... He goes in very cautiously in this scene, mm-hmm. and he doesn't try to force the issue. He sees that he's got to back off, and he's got to make a nut. He's got to take another route uh, in his political scheming. I think it's it's really well played. By I think he's also testing to see what how much Sands is a part of this because yeah, if she had no idea of this plot, like it seems like a no brainer that she would jump on the ship and get back with her family, right? But. You know, she's so. definitely on board, so he he backs off, which is smart. Yeah, it's a little annoying to me that like as Sir Loras is a much more serious and and an impressive and cool figure in the books, where in the show, time after time, it's just like har har, Loras is gay, right? Um, but yeah, uh, so, so they, they they simplify the the court intrigue quite a bit by just having Loras stupidly and kind of non sequiturally blunder that oh my intended doesn't even know that I'm gay. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but yeah, I guess it's like you know it, it ties up this stuff in two episodes instead of God knows how many it would take. Mm-hmm. Still, Loras 
you, they didn't they didn't they didn't do right by your character, man. Yeah, no, I <laughs> they really didn't. It's unfortunate. They could have played that a lot better. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Tywin calls Tyrion and Cersei together to discuss the plot to marry Sansa off to Loras. He has to educate Tyrion as to why Sansa is the key to the North, which annoys him. Everything annoys him, though. Um, and why the plot by them is such a problem by the Tyrells. Uh, to solve it, Tywin tells Tyrion that he'll marry Sansa and get her pregnant to secure the North. And Cersei drinks up Tyrion's shock and dismay. Uh, so so un- good. Until... Tywin also springs a surprise on her. She's going to marry Loras to secure the Reach, which she very much does not like. Because, yeah, I mean, because she's already married off to one man who's Mm -hmm. going to, like, ignore her and mistreat her. And now she's getting married to a man that's not going to even ever be interested in her. Yeah. And what an insult and shock. But... Any sympathy I, I, kinda... I would feel for her has been robbed by the delight that she has in tormenting Tyrion and giving this permission, and, and also the Stark girl by con- by by, mm-hmm. uh, by comparison. Because like what a he- like Tyrion sees the hellish fate to be married to like your arch enemy and the family that killed your killed your father. And to me, yeah. like like Sansa dreams of marrying some knight, and she thinks she's going to marry Sir Loras, and now she's getting married to the freak of the Lannister court. Like yeah. That's like you said. That's cruel, even for you, which is sad to hear Tyrion uh-huh. say, but also very true. Um, well, look on the bright side. Now the Lannister children have something to bond over. Yeah, they're all <laughs> both being married their, off to people they don't want to marry. They're, they're kind of hating, loathing for their father. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that like when she tries to like believe, pre, believe, uh, you know, she first tries like the proud, like I will not be married off like some brood mare, and Tywin's like, "Fuck yeah, yeah you daughter. will." And then when she tries to, like, you know, plead as a daughter to the father, and he just, like, slaps the table and says that all my children have been a disgrace for my name and that you're going to put an end to these disgusting rumors, like, is there any any one of his children that Tywin loves? It seems like they're just all fall short of his mark of perfection that he himself set. Like, Jamie, you know, foolishly went off and joined the Kingsguard that, like, you know, complicated the family legacy and... Now Cersei's doing this, and and Tywin's all, or Tyrion's always been a disappointment. It's it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah, and this is Tywin's effort to retake the reins here, and I think it works. I think both of these children are cowed. I don't. What are they going to do? I, yeah, I don't see them having a way to really fight Tywin because like Tyrion could go. The only thing, the only way Tyrion could appeal this or either of them is go to Joffrey. Yeah, and Joffrey thinks it's super funny to do this to Sansa and Tyrion, mm-hmm. and like he's kind of got this antipathy towards his his mother too. Right, like I think he's cruel enough to to recognize the irony of that, and also maybe in a creepy way he'd rather be with his mom, his mom be with someone that's not going to make the moves on her as a woman, because <laughs> uh-huh. that, that saves his perverted teenage brain from having to think about it. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so there's like no recourse. You've got the most, no. essentially the most powerful man, except for the crazy teenage boy who's not going to help you either. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, it's no, depressing. It's, it's all bad for uh, Tyrion and Cersei, which uh, not not happy to see that happen to Tyrion. Cersei, yeah, maybe, maybe I think Cersei gets what she deserves. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, but that's the end of the episode. Uh, and then again, you know, Cersei, there's another, she's a poster child of another, like, I understand where she's coming from. I don't condone it, you mm-hmm. know, because, like, she's got multiple reasons for being the shit human being she is. Uh, she steadfastly refuses to rise above it, and that's where mm-hmm. 
Before we get to feedback, hey, have you heard that Bald Move has a club? It's super cool. It's super swanky and exclusive. Go to club.baldmove.com to get the many benefits. Prime prime benefit is you enable Bald Move to keep making podcasts. That's pretty cool. A lot mm-hmm. of people seem to enjoy it. Uh, it's a gas for all involved. Why, why, why not support it? Uh, but also you get a lot of other benefits like ad-free feeds, um, uh, exclusive bonus bod, uh, bonus video and audio podcasts and video podcasts like Lunch with Jim and Aaron and Quit Your Pitching, um, video versions of most of the podcasts that we do so you can watch us record it live. It's the fastest way to get a podcast like that. Um, VIP access to forums. Just a ton of special features. You can preview them all for free. You can try and sample them at club.baldmove.com before you buy, and you get a 30-day risk-free trial just by signing up club.baldmove.com. All right, are we ready to consider some feedback? Yeah, let's do it. Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Uh, you can also discuss amongst yourselves in a spoiler-filled thread on our forums, forums.baldmove.com. First up, Christopher D., uh, Aaron, you're writing a book on this subject. Maybe you might you know the answer. Back in season two, and Rob gets married to Delisa. It's a wedding of the faith of the seven. Yet Rob is from the north. His wife is from Philanthus, neither of which follows the faith. Do the old gods not have their own wedding ceremony, or is this some sort of integrating mechanism that has replaced weddings in the north, similar to knighting ceremonies following the seven? Uh, I, you're mostly in the right that, uh, first of all, this was a controversial scene to a lot of book readers because most of Ned's children, with the notable exception of Sansa, much prefer, I guess, the old gods if they prefer anything, with Sansa kind of liking the Seven because she's trying to be like her mom, who is a su- southerner, a southern, uh, and who holds to the faith. And also the faith, the Seven, is what provides all the chivalry and the concept of knights and that things, the, 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 the beautiful stories that she likes to hear so much. Um, so a lot of people are like offended that Rob would be married by a Septon, forgetting the fact that Ned was married in a Sept by a Septon to Catelyn and didn't renounce his faith. Um, and also like something that I've really been, I've learned a lot from my writing partner, uh, Dr. Anthony Ladon is that there's this concept called uh, syncretism, where when cultures like there's two ways that cultures can in, like can intermingle like through war and conquest where something consumes something else and it kind of gets like you know uh just completely destroyed and assumed or uh like it can mingle like for example you know if you look at the lot of the 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 rituals and holidays around Christianity uh Christmas and Easter ostensibly they're about the birth and death of Jesus Christ but also you know what's up with the trees what's up with the rabbits what's up with the you know if you go back in those it's because they're like different pagan faiths like saturnalia and solstice being blended in to kind of like make it all palatable and there's a lot of examples in uh westeros for example uh the high septon's um priestly rod is carved out of a weirwood tree uh, the when most proclamations are in the light of the old gods and the new, there's this idea that these societies have kind of like, you know, after thousands of years of living together, kind of blended one into the other. There's seps up in the north, and there's still you know stubby little godswoods down in the south. So I'm not that upset with the idea that Rob would get married, nor do I know or I think that there's ever been identified like a. Uh, like an official old gods ceremony. I'm pretty sure that like the wildlings of the first men, they would just probably like everybody knows we're an item. Right. And then that would be it. <laughs> hmm. um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not really up in arms. I didn't think it was that big of a, like a change uh, f- 
from from the book Rob's character, um, and it's all that concept of syncretism, which we we talk about a lot in the book. So. Uh, thanks for the stealth plug, Christopher. Uh, Roger Dotsy, long-term, hmm. long-term bald move fans, uh, personal arrogance fans will know this, him as Roger Connect the Dotsy, uh, says, The order of the scenes in this episode always kind of irks me. I have no idea why they had the scene with Tywin announcing the marriages of Tyrion and Cersei as the very last of the episode, because I find it fairly anticlimactic. That could have ended with hmm. with Grey Worm announcing he'd keep his name with the triumphant music cue. They could have ended it with Jon Snow and Egret in the cave. More importantly, they could have and should have ended the episode with Jamie and Brienne and their bath scene. Just think about it from a storytelling perspective. Have the penultimate scene be Tywin denouncing his children as disappointments, then swing over to Heron Hall immediately after. Jamie comes in with his Jamie-ness and just hops into the same tub as Brienne. Just when the audience is thinking, oh, God, more Lannister bullshit, you throw in the 180 of his long-standing despair over his reputation. I think it would be a much more compelling juxtaposition. Not to mention, I find the ending of the episode on a satisfying dramatic beat is just more compelling TV. Why would they end with this air of bitter disappointment? Uh, just this season alone, we've ended at episodes of the reappearance of Barris and Selmy, the capture of Jamie and Brian, Jamie losing his hand, and Danny getting her army. And that's just this season. I, know I think I'm... you answered your question. There's a lot of Jamie endings in this mm. season. I think they didn't want to just do another Jamie climax. Hmm. That's. It seems like a foolish reason, but I bet that factored in. Yeah, like anytime, like it seems like uh, something where it's an artificial sense of balance or fairness. Like, yeah. oh, because I, I kind of found myself really agreeing with Roger here. Yeah, and thinking, no. That... Yeah, you're right. Any of the like, almost any of those standalone scenes would have been a better, like, more games of throning ending than this melancholy. Like I said, this tape, this resentful family dinner that goes into Shireen singing the goofy Patchface song. I mean, unless that's the the vibe you're going for at the end of the episode. You but know, I think the, that the Jamie thing would have been a little bit different. You don't think that Shireen could have played out Jamie's like you know, my name is Jay. Like I'm like when she calls him the Kingslayer and he goes, my name's Jamie. Yeah, I think it would have been a different vibe hmm. to it because that's pretty mm-hmm. bit. And I also really like the idea of. You know, Tywin ranting and raving about his disappointment of children and going to Jamie, where should have been his finest moment, is turned into the thing that everyone throws in his face. Um, no, narratively, I think, like, you make a compelling case. Uh, you end this with Jamie and Brienne in the bath right after that Tywin scene. I think it is more effective, but also I do think there were probably some strange concerns in the writer's room. Mm hmm. Uh, that caused them to not go with that ending. Too much Jamie. The, 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 there's a there's a massive too much Jamie. They Jamie very much revolt. wanted a specific feeling at the end of this Anti-Jamites. episode. Anti Jamites. <laughs> yeah. Uh, finally, last non spoiler email before we get to the spoiler section. Uh, Jared C. Just a random question. I was doing some browsing on the Wiki of Ice and Fire webpage and was wondering was it ever established how far south the White Walkers made it during the Long Night? I didn't see anywhere specifically stating that, but I didn't do any in depth research. It just seems to me that they didn't make it very far past what is currently the wall, maybe just into the northern towns. Um, so for a long time, a lot of people speculated that maybe they made it as far south as Winterfell, uh, thinking that in the midst of time, the name Winterfell was named because that's where the Night's King and the Winter like you know, met their end. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a couple of years, oh, was that 2014 or 2015, when the World of Ice and Fire, the, the big kind of encyclopedic companion piece came out, and one of the entries about the River Roin 
mentioned that during the long night that the Royne froze as far south as its confluence with the Selhoru River. Now, I know that no one knows where the hell that is unless you're sitting and uh, looking at a map. But if you do and you go, you, you compare latitudes, that's as far south as the mountains of Dorne. So damn near all of Whoa. Westeros and a lot of Essos froze during the long night. It was, you know, it's certainly pockets of human resistance, including probably Winterfell. Um, but but it was a it was a, it was a serious thing. And it's hmm. again, like we've said as over the last few weeks, that this is this was a worldwide cataclysm, which is why you have all the different disparate myths and the, and about and prophecies about. You know, the Long Night, Azora High, the Last Hero, the Prince that was promised, they're all from diff- slightly different takes on the exact same phenomenon because it's something the entire globe of Martin's world experienced, or at least the northern hemisphere of it. And that is the non spoiler email. Again, if you'd like to send us more, please do so. Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. We will consider it next week. But without further ado, let's get into the spoiler section. Uh, Jim. Yeah. Our Theon count stands. Theon torture count stands at, at a hefty four out of five episodes because yeah, uh, no we didn't Theon have any Theon. Yep. Got a little bit of a respite. Uh, do you have any things that you wanted to talk about? Uh, yes. Yes. I This scene with uh, Sansa and Littlefinger and and this whole Loras thing, it, you can see one of the dual pieces of Joffrey's fate clicking into place here. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Littlefinger being denied like this this one avenue has to pursue you know another avenue um he's got to get sansa out of there and he can't do it while this promise of loris is still on the table yeah and i think there's something later on i can't remember exactly what it is but it changes olena's view of the situation Mm -hmm. and so she helps out with that plot and you you can really see that like this is the catalyzing moment yeah. For that. It's funny because on this this rewatch, everything is so laid bare. Because yeah. I, I talked about like you know Tywin writing those letters, and I think they're telling the story throughout like this episode, like where Locke comes bopping up to Bolton, be like, "Hey, look what I found! And I fucked him up real good, boss." And he's like, uh-huh. "You son of a bitch! How dare!" That's because he's gotten a letter setting up the red wedding, and the last thing he wants to do is antagonize the Lannisters. Yeah. Because he, he doesn't want to have to explain to Tywin about the hand. And Locke is really confused because, like, we're still the king of the North's men, right? But he's not yeah. high enough in the chain to, 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 you know, obviously uncover that plot. And also the fact that, like, Tywin is talking about these plots is supposed to kind of set your mind and thinking, like, what other plots might be in motion that we don't know about. Right, the ones that Tywin has but doesn't talk about. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of really interesting things when you're watching and you know what happens. You can see this unfolding in plain sight. Um, yeah. But yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember Elena's half of this, like Elena and Marjorie. Do they just realize that Joffrey is a completely uncontrollable asshole and is dangerous to Marjorie? And so they want to kill him and get get her with someone a little more reasonable. Is that why they team up with Littlefinger? Because. I understand from Littlefinger's perspective, he's got to remove Loras from the equation, or he's got to, re- he's got to yeah. remove Marjorie as queen from the equation. Because if he can do that, then there's nobody to promise Sansa to Loras, right? Because mm. they're they're all like, "Oh, we're going to wait until after I'm queen, give well, it a while, then I can tell Joffrey." See, I think that this lung, the way he and the way he saw the the rungs of the ladder of chaos is oh. You know, I might be able to maneuver and, and figure out ways around, like, Loras, but, like, Tyrion Lannister would be a lot harder to move against. So what I'll do is I will just kill 
kill uh, Joffrey, it will be blamed on Tyrion, mm-hmm. and then I can spirit Sansa out. I think that's right. how his kind of calculus went down. Yeah, so the but change comes when I, I also Tywin's think that plot, like right. I think the change comes because there's an episode that's coming up uh, as part of this aftermath where Roz gets killed and yeah. there's the you know that Joffrey like killed this woman with a crossbow, maybe involving Marjorie, and maybe that's where it's like this guy's just too yeah this he's just too fucking crazy. Like it's there's no like as, as talented as Marjorie is a manipulation. There's no way that we're going to be able to just manage this situation. Um, so that's I guess. I, I honestly I don't know because it's been so long since I've read the third book in its entirety. I've certainly been brushing yeah. up and researching the book and stuff, but just sitting down to read it, and um, I'm not quite sure what happens at the end of this ep- season versus what happens at the beginning of the next season to kind of like set these events right. in motion. But it's been a long time since I've seen these seasons. Yeah, uh, but yeah, there, there's something obviously happens to do. I wonder if. If Littlefinger, I can't remember this either. If Littlefinger and Elena have some kind of deal to let her have King's Landing, if she stays out of his way in the north, is there some kind of like joint effort to take over Westeros with via Marjorie and Sansa? I don't think so. I think Lady Olena's payment is to get you know is to get uh, you know her daughter still be the queen, which right, makes right. Highgarden so powerful. And yeah, then later but, but she when the teams faith... up with Littlefinger, so Littlefinger right. presumably would want her out of the way in the north, right? Who? Who are we talking about? Olena. Why would he think Olena would fuck with him in the north? I mean, because she I has mean, that, King's that's, Landing that's and the, I guess the that's, Seven Kingdoms. You, now like, that we're talking about it, that it, it's kind of odd to me that... I wonder what Tywin's plan for Littlefinger was, because he has given him essentially uh, Hall and the Vale... Mm-hmm. And if he lets him have, like, uh, clearly he's going to give his son the North, but, like, that right. puts Littlefinger, like, like Harrenhal is extremely wealthy. Uh, the Vale is extremely powerful and, you know, has pedigree. Like, he's going to be a force, especially if we go with the show route where we find out that the Lannisters are secretly broke. Yeah. Like, that seems foolish for some for Tywin to put such a cunning and intelligent and ruthless person with that much power. Yeah, I think I think Tywin is making a mistake here. Yeah. Um, well, he's when maybe he's, he's trying to correct it, right? You know, with the the Sansa thing, right, but right, right. He doesn't realize, I think that that Littlefinger is making moves to take the North. Via maybe he's Sansa. underestimating him. He's yeah. also because like, he's giving him you know some powerful pieces, but ultimately yeah. he's gonna Tyrion's gonna be in charge of the North. And the fact that he's secretly broke is you know, something that maybe gives him a little bit of enough desperation that he's willing to take risks that he otherwise wouldn't hmm. do if, as a as a you know a person as as wealthy as people think he is yeah uh he's know- playing with fire though because you know elena when she goes down the list of things she's given king's landing yeah uh the, the tyrells have given king's landing right that's the only thing that's going to see them through the winter mm-hmm. uh tywin upsets that overturns that apple cart mm-hmm. i don't know that he's got the apples to feed his people Mm-mm. Um, I also thought it was very really bittersweet Gendry's faith in the Brotherhood when you find out that they sell him down the river or up, up, <laughs> yeah. up the Red Woman's River in a couple uh-huh. episodes. Like it's a very cute scene, but the whole time I'm like, oh man, yep. Wait, just just you wait, just you wait. Um, there's also that like talk of Beric Dondarrion about how every time he comes back, there's a little he's a little bit less. 
mm-hmm. but they don't have actually do anything. Like, no, they haven't done a damn thing with that. I, I, I think this this Barrick thing and Lady Stoneheart exists in the book just to make you think, like, just to have you concerned about what will happen to Jon Snow when he comes back to life. And mm-hmm. I think Martin has this whole clever, like, warging into ghost kind of strategy to sidestep that, and the show just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. Because there's like a there's a couple of throwaway lines where John's like, you know, I might not be quite myself or I don't but But it never manifests. Nah, he's still yeah. like he's never not acted in a different manner than pre undead Jon Snow. So Yeah. There's also like a little bit of um Chekhov's caches of wildfire. Ah, uh, right. Talking about where they're all buried, you know. <laughs> right. Under the sept. Yeah, uh, all exactly, those exactly. Which you know, there's a lot of people that that are very convinced that the book will not involve this big like wildfire conflagration of uh, but and i i've kind of agreed but man ah uh, they really laid tr- like to me that everyone likes and wants to chalk that up as to the double d's just like really consolidating things mm-hmm. um but them laying the tracks this far out makes it seem like maybe maybe it's not on that big a scale where they just eliminate all characters that are not like 12 that we care about but <laughs> right Maybe that would be something because there's only a little bit like when when Tywin dies, uh, Cersei torches the hand of the, of the the kings, the Tower of the Hand, as kind of like I don't know because she's batshit. Um, and maybe they just took that and inflated it up to be the Great ba- Sept of Baylor on fire. But is there any chance know. that that there's more wildfire still to be set off? And that Danny somehow ends up in that and becomes essentially what King Eris thought uh-huh. he would become, a dragon right. at the end of this. What was that? Danny, yeah. right? So King Eris, in as Jamie describes it, thought right. he would burn up and become a dragon. Which he's a long line of Targaryens. Like like Joffrey was saying last episode, they're the one that, that drank, drank it to, wildfire yeah. to think that he was going to become a dragon. Yeah. Is there any chance that actually happens to Danny? She burns up in a wildfire in King's Landing explosion. Like Cersei becomes the Mad Queen, hmm. sets it off, burns herself and Danny alive, but Danny survives. Well, I mean, that, we've already that seen absolutely her could happen. But right. her turning into a, physically tur- turning into a dragon, I doubt it. It's a little too high fantasy for me. <laughs> me too. Um, me too. But definitely, it could be an interesting way for her to uh, survive that wildfire and become the queen. Right. Because I think she's already metaphorically become the dragon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking of that, I also really like to transition from Shireen talking about the history of Aegon the Conqueror and his conquest of Westeros, and then yeah. the Targaryen theme starts playing. <laughs> they smash cut the Danny and her army, mm-hmm. like. I see that, and I'm like, it's no wonder the fans get a little impatient with Danny and Marine because here in the middle of season three, they're really wetting our wetting our appetite for her to come over and kick a lot of Westerosi ass, and it's going to be yeah. four more seasons, mm-hmm. four more seasons. <laughs> uh, that's all the kind of spoiler things I wanted to po- point out, but we got a ton of stuff from the fans. Should we get to it? Yeah. All right, Lauren M. Uh, I'd like to know what the uh, what Varys did to that man in the box. Any thoughts on the voice Varys heard in the flames? Uh, I assume he made soup out of his genitals <laughs> and fed it to him. I don't know. Maybe he fashioned a new set of genitals after the warlocks. Like, yeah. You know, it's like uh, an eye for an eye, a dick for a dick, mm-hmm. ball for a ball. It's a very old God's Testament. Um, I would like to know, too, though. Yeah. Like, what kind of man is Varys? What does Varys' revenge look like? I think he might get fucking medieval on this guy. Yeah. Like, that might I think be his very, indulgence. I think very least he's going to cut him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The same way he cut Varys. Oh, yeah. And then and then give him the little finger for use for the people with unusual appetites. <laughs> Maybe so. 
the thoughts on the voice of Varys Heard in the Flames. This is interesting because it's something, um, you know, one of the stretch goals we had on our, our Kickstarter book on this religion, the Gods of Thrones book, um, when we decided to, like, you know, make it a supersized feature, we started going through and looking at some of the more obscure. And one of the things we started researching is, like, you got all these, like, the Woods were Witch, Maggie the Frog, uh, you know, the Magi over uh, Mary Mer, uh, Mary Mazder uh, that that killed Drogo or, you know, did all that crap. Um, you've got the Warlocks of Preet and, like, you know, what is their deal? And, you know, like, Anthony's been opening my eyes to, like, a lot uh, in, like, ancient times, you know, like, magicians or sorcerers. Like, if the townsfolk liked you, you were, like, their shaman. But if they were, like, afraid of you for whatever religious, like, you know, if there's a woman that lived out in the woods and she knew how to cause a girl to have an abortion, like, people might hate her but also use make use of their services and they would turn, they would, you know, call her a witch or whatever as a way to, like, you know, uh, hmm. kind of ostracize her but still, to, but still make use of their services. And I think that... You know, in this world where like magic is we is is actually real, you have these these people that are serving these arcane forces. But that's that goes back to the big question of like, are there real gods? Yeah. If they're not gods, if they're just an understanding of these elemental forces, then there could be independent ways to tap into those with ritual and mm-hmm. and also like how much of the ritual actual work works. Like you got Thoros who said the prayer about you know return your lord uh or to return your servant to the light he said that a million times he said a funeral rites a million times this time it worked and it's a surprise to him mm-hmm. like that dude that cut off Varys's dick and threw it onto a brazier and blue fire came and the guy like maybe that's 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 just one of the effective ways you could call upon that art un- uncanny power there's not a lot of mm-hmm. guidance here and uh, but you know that's what our book's all about is like trying to th- look at real history to like uh, you know, answer some of the gaps that are in the Martin's uh, world building and source uh, source material. I think Jamie should throw his hand in the fire, see what happens. Yeah, might as well. Just try it. Yeah, you know, I mean, Lord you got of Light, a hand, here you go. You got a hand with, uh, you know, like if not King's blood, then Hand's blood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got Lannister Hand's blood. Like, just, it's just going to waste. Just try it. Just go to waste. What's the worst that could happen? You burn up your already dead hand. You burn up and you give, you give yourself, you, you put down a, 10, a 5% deba- deposit on your own cremation. <laughs> You're going to need it anyway, unless you plan on living forever. Um, who do you think struggled more to get on the High Council, Varys or Littlefinger? Struggled more to get on the High Council? Mm-hmm. Probably Varys. I think so, too. Because he... Like I mentioned earlier, he was serving the Mad King before this. Uh-huh. Robert probably had some questions for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably side-eyed him a bit before putting him on the council. But even that, like, Littlefinger can th- feel sorry for himself all he wants. He is a minor no- member of the nobility. Sure. He was yeah. he was a ward of uh, River Run. Like, he was treated yeah. like, the yeah, he doesn't have a lot of lands, doesn't have a lot of money, but... You know, his dad had fought his way to a title. Mm-hmm. Varys is a street urchin who is a eunuch, double cursed in the eye. Like, he's not a man. He's not a woman. He's a freak. They don't like that. They don't like that he's a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Strike two. They don't like that he's a poor, wretched street. Like, it's amazing. It is amazing that Varys is able to climb to the heights that he was able to. And yeah. just, just through a sheer usefulness and, and intelligence and ability. Uh, he's really a cell. He's, he's he, they took his bootstraps away, and he still lifted himself up by them. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, third point and final one from Lauren. If Joffrey didn't die, do you think Marjorie could have been a good influence on him? <laughs> taking away, taking him away from Cersei and maybe quell some of his violent tendencies. No. I think no. you give a violent psychopath a beautiful woman and it's not going to end well. No. Like, he's got problems that met, that need medication and professional therapy to, to, figure, <laughs> to, to solve. Not um, many therapists in Westeros last Also, like, don't forget that he's the, proce- he's the product of brother and sister fucking. Like, he could mm-hmm. have some chromosomal fucking damage. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just yeah. psychotic. He could be, like mad, like, mad king, like, genetically, which is a lot, you know, that's also a lot of problem with the Targaryens, too. Uh, Jeff P. I've been listening to endless hypothesizing about who will or will not die in the final season, with many people predicting that John or Danny or both will die. To me, such a prediction misses an obvious feature for the story that both John and Danny are already dead. I believe John killed in the mutiny and Danny killed when she jumped onto the funeral pyre of both reanimated avatars of Relore, each reanimated with a predestined role to play in combating the White Walkers. Only when considered together do they fulfill the prophecy of Azor Ahai as each fits separate criteria. Also, neatly, they'd become the Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I believe that only after the White Walkers are defeated, with both John and Danny so seemingly surviving the victory, do we get to the bittersweet end, which is John and Danny collapsing in death mere seconds after the last White Walker is defeated. Interesting. Uh, as alluded by Davos in Season 6, I predict a, I predict a horrifying twist of fate... Uh, will be the Lord of Light is an actuality and all-powerful malevolent deity. Now free of his adversary, the great other, R'hllor is free to toy forever with his planetosi subjects. Um, huh. I like the first... I actually thought... I think it's a, it's a pretty sweet idea to have them just drop dead after they've served their purpose. I don't, I don't know if I actually think it's going to happen. I really don't they like... Sort, they, do they... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They kind of lean into that idea conceptually, though I know it's not really mm-hmm. directly connected with, you know, killing a, a White Walker. Right. Uh, it kind of destroys all their whites. Yeah. Um, so I maybe there's a loose thread to unravel there. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't... I mean, it's not a bittersweet ending to have R'hllor end, uh, you know, uh, a millennia, the, the unleash a millennia of suffering and, and no, devastation to Westeros. That's just, that's just bitter and horrific. Mm. But, like, the two heroes dying because you find out they were just, you know, zombies um, serving a greater... Fa- that, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> uh, Phil W. from Australia. In context of the later seasons, do you believe that the mention of the Golden Company by, uh, by Cersei in Season 7 and by the Knights in the last episode... Uh, and also them getting their own segment narrated by Ser Jorah on the Season 7 Blu-ray. I didn't know about that. It means they'll make a significant appearance in Season 8. As we know, the Golden Company themselves were formed out of the remnants of the old Blackfire Rebellion, led at the time by uh, Bittersteel. In the books, John Connington is one of the top men and is currently capturing Storm's Inn for Aegon. They are both heavily devoted not just to Targaryens, but also to getting home. I believe in the show they may turn cloak against Cersei and unite with the Targaryens, possibly choosing Jon Snow as their liege rather than Danny. Yeah, which would be actually an interesting parallel with what Tywin did with uh, yeah. Robert, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he came to Siege King's Landing. I think, yeah, that's a distinct possibility. I think the the gold uh, Golden Company will show up in Season 8. They sh- for sure, but will they be able to get in the backstory? Because, like... Yeah, it's question. cool that they do that stuff in the you know the lore sections of the DVD and the Blu-rays, but like not a lot of um, not a lot of fans are going to get a chance to watch that stuff. Mm. And is there enough 
is there enough in six episodes that they could just tell this complicated story about this old Targaryen, you know, this thing that goes back to uh, was it uh, was it Magor the Cruel? Uh, or no, it was Aegon the Unworthy and his great bastards and how that led to a Targaryen rebellion and the Blackfires and their many defeats and the civil wars and their exile to Essos. Like, that's a lot of shit to unpack. Yeah, and they could have been we'll doing it as we've introduced the sellsword companies. They could have introduced right. this backstory so they could play a pithy 15-second quote from Jorah or fucking uh, 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 Dar- Dar- Dario Nyquilis. uh and on a previously on, so people would be, oh yeah, I remember that. I just they just haven't seem like they've led the tracks at all. Like the only reason you're seeing tracks is because you've read the books and the reference materials. <laughs> Otherwise, I, it, I, I wouldn't have known all that. So I, I don't think they're going to do all that. I think right. the Golden Company will be more of just a piece of Cersei's puzzle. It'll be it's, an ex- explanation for why she still has troops, even though they all got burnt up and the right. the chuck wagon to. And it's going to be like I think they need to do something to tell us what their loyalties are. Though they don't have to explain the entire history of it, I think they need to tell us, "Hey, this is a risky uh, thing for Cersei like to the do." Because company is like they're just like this well-renowned that that goes to the highest bidder. I know, but they also need to talk about their Targaryen loyalties mm. at least a little bit, right? It would be cool if they brought that up, and then if they could come up with a good way to do that, then like I don't know why they just wouldn't go with uh, Phil's old plot of like you know bringing it into because there's like. God damn, the books have so much like potential like endings at the place where that because like there's the whole like you know Varys might be a secret Blackfire himself and he's trying this is like right. <laughs> the old long con to get the Blackfires back on the throne. Uh-huh. It's it's there's 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 that possibility. There's like a lots of cool stuff that they have just categorically refused to bring about on the show, which probably means in the books they're not going to go anywhere either. But then again, like. You know, it seems like to me, George and the Double Ds are kind of on the outs, and the Double Ds are like, "Fuck you, old man. We're going our own. We're we're wrapping this thing up, uh, however we see fit, and because we have to, because we you have haven't to. given a shit. We're contractually yeah. obligated, and we take that shit seriously, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Tiang M, what are your thoughts on something I've been mulling over? Uh, at how many levels of subversion there are in the Game of Thrones? I didn't notice this until I started reading the books after season seven, but one of the more interesting levels of subversion in this series is the entire framework of good versus evil. In Western popular culture, whites always associated life, goodness, purity, and righteousness, essentially all that is right, while evil is associated with black, darkness, malevolence, and death, essentially all that is evil. Think about how many fantasy villains have been called something along the lines of the darkness or the shadow or anything else that implies blackness. And of course, you know, parenthetically, he states that there's also a lot of racial overtones in that. Uh, which is something that Western popular culture tends to have giant blind spots about. Uh, In Game of Thrones, that trope is completely flipped. The number one nightmare scenario in Game of Thrones, a world where murder, slavery, war, theft, rape, and pillaging are ways of life, for many is a world blanketed in white snow and ice, a whiteout, if you will. I mean, the fact that the marquee villains are called the whites or the, you know, W-I-G-H-T says it all. White is evil and means death. The flip side, the color black is associated with valor, heroics, and self-sacrifice. Despite what it became at the start of the series, the Night's Watch used to be regarded as an incredibly noble cause that only the strongest and brave uh, took a part of. Taking the black was synonymous with virtue and self-sacrifice. So, 
we talked about Jon Snow, our main hero, arguably the most moral and virtuous character in a world like Westeros, spent the better part of his series dressed in black in the Night's Watch. Even after he left the Night's Watch, he continues to dress in black. He also has black hair. Uh, by season seven, all of our main heroes, Jon, Danny, Tyrion, Bran, Sansa, and so on, are dressed in black and browns. The three Cersei. I- Don't forget Cersei. Cersei, true. <laughs> She's uh, not a hero. Uh, she is not. She's not. She's bucking the trend. The three-eyed raven, the symbol of omnipotent power and maybe goodness, appears in the form of a black raven. Uh, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on this kind of like dichotomy so do you do you see i don't have much to as... add i think it's an interesting thing to observe sure yeah and it's similar like you know george lucas famously put the stormtroopers in white the mm-hmm. kind of like and he to, to kind of flip that like good and of course he didn't also dressed up uh vader and black on black on black yep uh and then you know the heroes kind of had neutral warm so it's something that people like to play with. It's a subversion, mm-hmm. um, and I have yeah, I got I have no problem seeing that as uh, Martin's way to like you know what is one other polarity that I can flip in this world to set people to, to confound their expectations and kind of like make it seem more interesting uh, than it otherwise might be. So yeah, I, I, th- I think um, one of those sort of subversions also um, exists in like you know the relore uh, religion. I think it's interesting that fire is typically viewed as a destructive thing right. and a dangerous thing. Here, it's like their salvation. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's their uh, the thing they worship essentially. Right. Um, ben B. After listening to the pod of season three, episode three, in which Melisandre tells Stannis he needs to get his hands on some more King's blood, it occurred to me: what makes King's blood King's blood? Is it simply a matter of perception? Even you accept Stannis as Robert's rightful heir because Joffrey and Tommen were bastards. Given what we've learned about Jon's parentage, Robert was never a rightful king. So is King's Blood <laughs> anyone who believes he's a king? To loosely quote Monty Python, strange women lying in flames distributing crowns is no basis for a system of government. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a great question. And like it's open question how much of Melisandre's shit is legit and how much of it is mm. fakery. Because... In the books, she is aware of the fact that, like, she has vials of shit in her robes where she's got antidotes to stuff and she's got powders that can make flash. And But also she's becoming aware that she's got some real power. And we find out also in the show that she turns out that she's an old crone, something that they kind of hint in the books, that she's actually someone that has a backstory that stretches back several hundred years instead of the, the youthful and beautiful woman that she actually is. Um, so she's this dichotomy. And... You know, we'll see her put this blood curse on a bunch of kings that eventually end up dying. But did they die because she burnt the leeches? Or, like, these are all things that I think Martin wants to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. He's pulling out the leftovers on us by really straddling that line between what's supernatural, what's ritual, what are things that happen because people believe and want them to happen. So they act in subtle ways to make it so. Uh, there unfortunately is not a clear cut answer on that stuff as of yet. Ben, it seems like in this context, King's Blood would be whatever the practitioner of magic wants King's Blood to be. Right, right. To to make them feel good about the ritual they're performing. Right. Whether it has an effect or not. Like in the books, since we're in a spoiler t- town, like Melisandre wants to use you know uh, 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 Mance Raider's blood. Mm. Yeah. 
Is he even a king? Like he's <laughs> styled as the king beyond the wall, but is he mm-hmm. really? Like what the hell does that? He wouldn't even call himself a king, right? And like every Stark has royal blood because up to three hundred years ago, they're all kings in their own right. Mm-hmm. Is that the you know does Tywin have royal blood because they were in the, the the they they were the king of the rock? Like who 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 knows what is like? This, are, are all of the Dornish nobility still got royal blood because they style themselves as prince and princesses? Um, I don't know. I don't know that Melisandre knows, and I don't know that the, the Lord of the Light cares. I don't even know the Lord of the Light is real. Uh, and I've just written a <laughs> book about the subject. So I think it'd be hard to find somebody without King's blood. Which, yeah. with as much philandering as these kings do, Bobby B himself sowed the land shock full. Of you can it. go to Flea Bottom. Everybody's Every, got King's blood. Everybody with sh- with with black curly hair just prick yep. him, and you got an unlimited font of King's blood. Uh, Christian. While listening to last week's podcast, I started to think about the characters that have died in the series. I started to wonder which character's death had the largest impact on the story of the series. In my opinion, I think it's either uh, Rob Stark uh, and Tywin Lannister are the ones that really shook up the story. Oof. Um, it's I mean, hard not to put Ned in there. <laughs> well, he excluded season one deaths to uh, set up okay. the plot of the story. So it's like... That seems unfair. Right. But... Yeah. Like, okay, excluding those? Because hmm. you could go back to, like, uh, John Aaron if you wanted the guy that, like, sure. his death literally kicked off the series. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to, if you, if you, I think it's pretty clear if you, if you disavow book one and season one that, yeah, Rob and Tywin gotta be. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the, you know, Rob was the biggest threat to the regime of the South, and Tywin was the biggest kind of savior, like the person who, if if you know, all the else being equal, uh, is the person who could have done the best job of of ushering Westeros through this this winter. Mm-hmm. Now, I think ultimately it's kind of an empty question because I don't think Tywin could have done anything about the White Walkers because he's just a man. Like these things yeah. are magical threats that need some kind of magic to counter them and. You know, Jon Snow with, uh, you know, Danny and her dragons. That's the thing that you need, apparently, to, to, to defeat these people. So, hmm. uh, so that's a season one. Season one? Season two death. Two. Drogo? Drogo? Oh, yeah, season one. That's a pretty important death, but if it's season one, it's yeah. true. But is it? Because if he hadn't died. I think so. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder. I don't, I don't know that Danny's path is the same. No, he for doesn't sure. die for sure. But he, uh, he's she's got a. I mean, Drogo would have just taken his hundred thousand screamers, rode up to the nearest port, pillaged it, forced a bunch of slaves to sail him across to Westeros, and Danny would have like I guess slightly smaller dragons to fight with, but she'd have a hundred thousand Dothraki. Like I don't know. Essentially, she would have. It'd be like season seven, Danny with no Unsullied mm-hmm. and small like big dog sized dragons. But but a very different Danny too. Like right. I I mean I'm talking, you know, if somebody needs to combat the White Walkers. Yeah yeah yeah. Right. Danny needs to be who she is. She needs to be not seasoned, just yeah. there. You know. Yeah. Uh, Bobby F was thinking about the listener feedback in 304 and how George regrets killing someone. Oh, we got some feedback on this. I'm glad. Uh, I'm wondering if this couldn't be Oberyn. I'll try to be as brief as possible in laying this out. In the show, the Dornish plot is a mess after Oberyn dies. Doran doesn't have any real plan. The Sand Snakes murder him for revenge, only do not declare war, raise armies, or do anything. They just sit in Dorne until Varys arrives and continue sucking with Danny. It doesn't seem like the Double Ds had any real cliff notes about what to do with Dorne, and they misfired badly. In the books, there's obviously more going on, but no matter how much gardening Gurm has done with the Dornish and Sand Snakes, they still haven't done anything as well. 
Doran claims he wants to put his daughter on the throne, but he doesn't really outline how. To my knowledge, Oberyn pops up in Feast after he's perfectly crafted deaths in the first three books. Uh, his death isn't a tragic hero's demise, long plan like Ned or Rob or even Joffrey. It's more of a damn that guy was cool, sucks that he's dead, but doesn't do much anything of anything for the plot. Tyrion just goes on, as does Tywin. It doesn't change anything, really, at least not in the moment, except for Doran's secret plans. Seems like it was intended as a yada, 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 five days later, five years later type of death. Is it possible that Gurm realizes that without Oberyn operating in King's Landing becomes very difficult for the Dornish to actually achieve any outcome in the framework of the story? It seems like his death would either accelerate or derail the Dornish plot, which puts Gurm in a knot as to what to do. Um, as a show watcher... What's your thoughts on this, Jim? I don't know because we're so far past Oberyn's death, and now we're really on to and the Dorn just Laria, right? Like fizzled. Yeah, it totally fizzled until like Laria brings her stuff uh, into the equation, but on Danny's side. Yeah. So like, I guess as a show watcher, I don't like I miss him because he was a cool character, like you right, said, but right. I don't really miss him as far as the plot goes, right? Because a lot of that was offloaded to Ilaria. And I don't know that I agree with his central thesis that Oberyn was super crush because Doran is supposed to be like Oberyn's intellectual, like like intellectual superior in terms of scheming and planning. Like you know, literally Oberyn was the snake with the rattles, the you know the flashy hood, uh, and, and he was like the fangs everyone sees, and 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 Doran was the snake in the grass that you couldn't see, like hiding behind a flasher Oberyn. So like. Oberyn was good with the blade, but like after the Tyrion's trial, what? If, so if Doran is just essentially a superior intellect version of Oberyn, then what? What plot could he not do that Oberyn could do better? Well, well, I mean, if I'm playing devil's advocate, yeah, look at the Mar- look at the Marjorie and Elena relationship, yeah. right? Like. I don't think Marjorie is as clever as Elena. Right. And she's the one behind the scenes kind yeah, of pulling okay, Marjorie's sure. strings. So maybe uh-huh. Doran could pull Oberyn's strings a little bit. But what to what end? Like, do you need yeah. a flashy snake showing his fangs everywhere in King's Landing to, yeah, to be successful? I, I don't know. To me, Oberyn did feel like it was very... Like, I mean, it's one of the best scenes in the books, one of the best scenes in the show. Mm-hmm. Like, and Doran if they wanted to, could have just been a smarter, more calculated, you know, he's the professor, he's the, the, the M to Sherlock Holmes, for example. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, or not that. What's James Bond? James Bond. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, M to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. No, Sherlock Holmes brother, like, he's like uh, not as physically gifted, but he's kind of smarter and more capable. He works for the M. Like I thought his name is M. It's not Moriarty because that's the arch, but, I don't know. Milton. Milton Holmes. Milton Holmes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I see what you're saying, but, like, I just don't see how... And, again, we don't... The, the, the plot of Dorne is completely fizzled in the show, and it hasn't fully come to fruition in the books. So, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if we have the answer to that. Uh, Aaron B. has a few guesses for the character he regrets killing. Uh, number one, Lysa, because the veil stuff is so complex in the books. We have the whole Harry the Air plot that's completely gone in the show, as well as the show just basically cutting Rob and Aaron after season six. They seem to have yada yada it. The whole Veil army thing in the show and getting them where they need to be in the books may be a shit show. 
hmm. Maester Aemon, who seems like he would be so important as a source of info about the Targaryens and the dragons to John and Danny, and he wanted to see her before he died. Gurm may be having trouble getting the whole dragon has three heads thing from the book to the to work without him. Hmm. I don't. Uh, I guess that could be. But I don't know. Like Lysa, I don't. I, it, Lysa can't be a death that he regrets. A- Ammon might be. Like he might have regretted not getting him in contact with. So just he could do like he could be play this, uh, you know, expository role to just like give her everything she needs to know about dragon lore. Right. But then what the hell is Sam's job going to the <laughs> Citadel? Like, good question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just it, the dragon class. Right, right. The, <laughs> like, Maester Aemon wouldn't know about that, even right. though he was a target. I mean, I don't know. That's it, It's tough, because like I said, I've been racking my head, and I really can't think of a single death that just jumps out as like, oh, yeah, that really painted him into a corner. Hmm. Uh, but I appreciate your guys' attempts at that. Brad T., in your most recent podcast, you were discussing how it seemed very out of character for Jamie to be sitting arrogantly on the Iron Throne when Ned enters the throne room. I actually think it's perfectly within his character. It would equate to Casey Affleck's Robert Ford and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford towards the end of the movie. When he's asked what he thought would happen when he killed Jesse James, Robert Ford answers applause. Jamie expected the same thing. He was young, cocky, insecure, selfish, and seeking approval. He knew he had saved the city and stopped mass destruction, but he failed to realize the reactions and perceptions that others had have, especially because he should have realized that the majority of people didn't know what he knew. He didn't even realize that even though his actions were justified, he would have he should have put on a front of remorse so as not to open himself up for criticism from his peers. Um, what do you think of this explanation? I kind of like it. I, th- I thought so, too. It's the best, the most compelling one that, like, he thought that because you know how much experience did he have with hard asses like you know ned stark (laughs) in king's landing probably not much so the fact that he i mean didn't realize that it was unseemly and like this this broken man in the bathtub is then that that arrogant cocky youth that still thought himself as a hero bitter that he wasn't treated that way Mm. it seems like it's a yeah i like it brad it's it's the best explanation i've heard yet because that that the guy that sat on the throne is not the guy in the bathtub. It's the guy who's lived with that miscalculation for those many years. Yep. Uh, Karen from Virginia Beach. And watching season three with you guys, I realized that the Unsullied are from Valeria. Does that mean their equipment is also white killing Valerian steel? I think this might be a misconception that several people have because the, the, the people that live in Slaver's Bay speak Valeria. But... Mm. They're actually the descendants from the old Giscari Empire. And if you see the Giscari as like an, 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 an analog to ancient Greece, and that the Valerians were like the Roman Empire that then sub, uh, superseded them, mm-hmm. um, these were like, so the Giscari were the first empire, and the Valerians appeared about 5,000 years ago, and with their superior dragon technology, with their air superiority and ability to incinerate entire armies, they, they overthrew the Giscari Empire. And after 5,000 years, most of the cultural elements that the, the, the Scar used to keep themselves distinct were forgotten, including their tongue. They all spoke Valerian because that's what the Valerians insisted on. Um, when the Valerians experienced the doom of Valeria, 
like there's all these cities that were like wealthy slave cities started like you know going back to their past these pyramids and the harpies and starting to use the cultural aspects that they still had to try to reforge a separate identity and like to reforge hmm. that old Giscari empire and take pride in like how ancient they were but they still spoke valerian even though they're not real valerian yeah if the fucking unsullied had valerian steel like one of their swords would be worth a fucking thousand of them <laughs> right like that's like how like it, how rare this material is there's yeah there's 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 no way but i see why uh would get that misunderstanding uh, when Sam kills the White Walker coming for the baby with his newly found dragon glass, do you suppose all the whites that the Walker made also exploded somewhere else? They should have alerted a whole lot of walkers that something was going on. I think That's you're right. Fair point, yeah. And I think there's maybe evidence that, that that did. Like, you know, what... That's one of the big mysteries. Like, why now? Why are, like, of, of all the countless winters that have happened since the long winter, why are the White Walkers getting all rowdy right now? Um, and there's a lot of interesting theories. I, if you go back to the spoiler archive, I did a whole segment on, you know, explanations for this to happen. Like maybe there was in the long night, it wasn't like the men defeated the White Walkers. It was more like a peace accord. And perhaps, you know, they were supposed to supply the White Walkers with X amount of healthy male newborn infants. And only Craster is doing that. And then Craster gets fucked over and who knows but like if if that's true then then maybe it's the men that have forgotten why they're doing the things they're doing they're the aggressors and the violation of this this compact like what if what if men are supposed to say south of the wall and the white walkers are supposed to say north of the wall in the last thousand years these men have encroached and the, these wilding populations are exploding that's a fucking violation of the terms of the peace accord so mm-hmm. i don't know it's a mystery still don't still don't know uh, can the three-eyed raven only see in the past if a raven was there to present to witness it or a tree with a face? Do you know the answer to that, Jim? I do not. Uh, it's explained in the books. I'm not sure if it, they say it in the series that, like, the first thing a green seer uses to, like, as training wheels are animals and these, especially these tree faces. Like, they're very easy conduits. But as you progress in power as a green seer, you can essentially kind of, like do whatever the hell you want yeah but it's like anything that happened in front of a white uh, this this these weirwoods um are very easy those, those are like the easiest conduits to kind of use uh jared from kansas city time to settle the age-old debate who is the better first-time lover john snow or pod the rod well we have multiple people attesting to pod's skills highly skilled highly paid king's landing courtesans at that yes uh, on the other hand, we we only have Egret who has tested John. I feel like the poll data is stronger. Mm-hmm. Don't mean that to be a pun for Podrick. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, as a lover goes, like I gotta say that uh, Egret's probably an amateur. Maybe she's gifted. Well, maybe she's not. I don't know how good those thins are, but that's what I'm saying. She's she's, she's had, had several lovers. She's had one boy who is an indifferent lover and a thin who is built like a mammoth, and that's all we know. Yeah. You know, like these these women like are like the the, the the they're at the apex sexual predators, and they were impressed with Pod. So I got to go with I got to go with Pod because yeah. they they know what they're talking about. They've seen it all. <laughs> all, the, all. On the other hand, it like I said in that episode, it could be Littlefinger's repayment to Tyrion, right? You know, the favor that he owed him, right? Maybe Jon Snow's the first person to invent cunnilingus in Westeros. 
fellatio has yeah. been you know Tyrion blazed that trail many many years ago but like it's n- no man has ever thought to put lips on pussy before Jon yeah. Snow no they don't talk about Podrick's lips no they do not they talk about the rod they do yeah they do is that that's not a that's show not that's not like, canon say, no. that's, we talk about Pod's rod <laughs> we talk about Pod's rod maybe a little too much for our, our health fair Willow uh, even in these early seasons, a show in the books have had a borderline obsession with A, showing us the Winterfell crypts at every opportunity, and B, having gruff, nor- gruff northerner wildmen spit out, burn the bodies. So what gives? We all know why the burning. Given this, when did this, and why did the Starks and those following the old gods decide that burial was the way to go? The season seven finale also had a zombie thudding from inside the box. Uh, who is else? Else is up for season eight, featuring a zombie Leanna and zombie headless Ned thud thudding from inside their <laughs> cask, leading right up to the title music. Huh? Fucked up, man. Uh, I don't it, know. You got you. You talked about this mingling of of religious ideas. Is that part syncretism? of it? Yeah. I mean, I it is interesting that of the crypts in Winterfell that they're all guarded by these stone likenesses of the kings and lords, and they all have like these iron swords bared across their uh, their their laps, which is like the northern way to say fuck off. And also, iron is in in high fantasy often like proof like against magic and sorcery. So it's hmm. entirely possible that. Uh, this was this the scheme was set up to like make sure those like restless spirits can't reanimate the dead i don't i mean that's one theory i've seen and then like the northerners have forgot why they do it but they still do it because it looks cool but like those iron swords are actually like you know international no sign for for whites to to reanimate their bodies i feel like the I, I very very highly doubt that the the tombs of winterfell will empty with a bunch of vengeful although that would be cool yeah, seeing a headless Ned come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it's wishful thinking on the part of the people who carry swords to say that iron is some kind of protection against magic. Yeah. It's like, I can't do magic, and magic seems really powerful, mm-hmm. but, but I got I this, this sword, sword right. and maybe that does something against it. Right. Yeah, I wonder like, how yeah, that... sure, buddy. Sure. I wonder how that... that. Like, oh, they're like, why does running water detour vampires... Yeah. Or garlic, like like I, garlic makes sense because like you know if you want to get really nobody yeah, wants it, to, it, yeah, and it's seen garlic. as like you know there's the whole thing of like uh, you know in the middle and when the uh, black death is going across that they would use strong smells to ward off other strong smells and like mm. you know you use a good smell to ward off the miasma that's causing it and so like garlic would keep you from smelling the dead bodies that people thought became vampires, but, like, yeah, what pig iron and running water? Where the fuck did that come from? Burying them at a crossroads because it's cross, and that <laughs> form of it, like, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, Russell from Australia, I want to touch on a topic where you were discussing uh, episode three about what lands are available to the wildlings. He wanted to point out that in the scene where we see the White Walker being created... Uh, that that place was shown as a lush woodland, and now we know it's a frozen, desolate place, hinting at the fact that the land of always winter has only been such since the White Walkers were created. Hmm. So, like, we're talking about, like, the gift of the, you know, the, uh, the, that, that chunk of land that the Northerners have given to the White Watch as being, or the, the Night's Watch to be settled, but, like, it could be that all of the lands of always winter become, like, some lush paradise hmm. that the wildlings and the... Uh, you know, um, who are the other troops that we thought? Oh, Danny's Unsullied could settle. Yeah, cool theory. We'll see if it uh, we'll see if it holds true. 
Fernando said, re-watching season three of you guys and seeing all the Theon torture scenes uh, and how I thought it was the lesser of the season three storylines, I kept thinking about Theon's storyline for season eight. If we had to rank season eight plots, I would say that Theon's story is yet again on the low end. With all the plots that need endings, my question is, how do you think the Double Ds will conclude with the Theon story? 20-minute wrap-up, constant cutbacks to Theon's story throughout the six episodes, just hand-wave it all away. What do you think? Whew, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm, I mean, I don't... Uh, honestly, as a viewer, I'm not looking for, uh, I guess, the the final rise of Theon right. as an important part of the, the finale. Right. Uh, honestly, my interests and loyalties have gone over to Yara. Mm. Uh, I think she is both a better leader, a more capable fighter at this point, like just a, a more all-around uh, queenly kind of presence where Theon, I don't know, I feel like they need to do something with him that that gives people a sense of closure on his story, but fuck me if I know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, he, could, he could be, you know, he his sister's... Had his moment of awesome where he reclaimed his... I mean, I guess that's the thing about Theon. He's this creature that was always jealous and selfish and cared about mm-hmm. the fine things he had and his cock, and now those things have been taken away and him finding some sort of self-worth without all those things. And I kind of feel it's like... given to him by Yara, right? Like, that's the... Right. But last season when he beat that man down... Yeah, yeah. Like, I felt like he kind of reclaimed some of his personal power, so, like... That's true. Does he need to rescue his sister? Does he need to die... In the attempt, does I, I don't know because like to me, you know, Theon already believes in himself, and that's the that's kind of his arc. Yeah. Like that's a satisfying end for his arc. So honestly, I don't really care, and that's a little bit on me because I just don't care about the Greyjoys. I'm kind of chagrined that they've come back flying into the story this that this late hour because like I'm a famous Greyjoy <laughs> hater, but no, I I agree. I think he's expendable at this point. Like he served his purpose. He's had his arc you could just throw him at the wall of violence that's sure to come. Um, it's an interesting email from Jackie D. I was intrigued by your discussion last week about how the fandom would respond if George just admitted he messed up with a piece of the plot that he, and he needed to rework to end the story and just re- retconned it. <laughs> she points out that J.R.R. Tolkien made many changes to The Hobbit after it was published in order to make The Lord of the Rings make sense. Uh, and I'm just going to paraphrase this because we've we've gone really long. Um, but essentially, the character of Gollum in the first edition of The Hobbit uh, just had a war of wits with with Bilbo, and Bilbo outsmarted him. He just gave up the ring freely because, like, that's the rules of the game. Uh, once you know Tolkien started writing the Lord of the Rings and the corrupting influence of the ring, he added the desperate, like, mm. you know, my precious kind of stuff to it. Yeah, and he retconned it by saying that, like, Bilbo, you know, the, the story of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, where Bilbo and Frodo wrote these, their autobiographies, and <laughs> unreliable narrative. Yeah, that, kind that, of that thing. Bilbo wrote the first version under the influence of the ring to make himself <laughs> like noble and like all this stuff. So and you then... really don't know the whole story of Lord of the Rings unless you've read both versions right. of so the like, Hobbit. They're, they're, like, it's not even a retcon so much as, like, the in, well, Frodo clean, saw, like, he lived through this, and he saw his uncle's lies and kind of cleaned it up. It's like the volume, volume two of the Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Told yeah. from, it, it covers the same material, but told from a different perspective. Right, right, right. So... Of the same character. That's so weird. Uh, George doesn't have that, because this is not, you know, this isn't, like, a discovered tome that's been translated by some stodgy English professor. Um... But, like, honestly, 
that I, I I probably knew that at some point because I used to be a big Tolkien fan. That's pretty shocking though that you can make a pretty big change like that to a major character just to smooth over a plot line in a later book. Yeah. So there's precedent. You know, George, he's already stole the RR from Tolkien. Why not the retconning? Uh huh. It stands for retcon, retcon. <laughs> always be retconning. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for pointing that out. Uh, Jonathan H., I think this is the second to last email. Uh, I know there's been some discussion on Varys and his motives, and I know he claims that he's loyal to the realm, but could it be that he's full of shit and just wants to see the whole world burn? So far, he's played both sides without actually gaining anything except for a whole lot of death. If his goal is to just shut, sow as much death and destruction as possible, would it really make sense why he is a spy in Danny's crew? Oh, no, then it would really make sense that he's a spy in Danny's crew. He's just playing both sides with the hope that he can cause as much suffering as possible as recompense for the suffering he's endured. What a character twist right there at the end. It's a less interesting <laughs> one, though, right? No, I agree. It's It comes out of nowhere, in my opinion. I mean, it's there, like the fact that he had everything taken from him by forces beyond his comprehension, and he wants to rise to the top so he can take everything from everyone. I just think it would be a little disappointing as the final reveal of his character. Essentially. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, this was all the long con to... I don't know. But I really like Varys. I'm a Varys, I'm a, I'm a Varys lover. So uh, maybe I'm not the most reliable narrator on that as well. Matt H., wanted to follow up on your comments about the one of the funniest exchanges in Game of Thrones and get your general thoughts on the comic relief of the series. Uh, thanks for recognizing the hilarity of Pod the Rod and his mysterious neophyte sexual prowess. I'm a little disappointed that this kind of humor seems to be waning as we get closer to the dramatic end of the series. You mentioned on a previous episode that Game of Thrones is a subversion of high fantasy, and to me the irreverent humor is a part of that. Aside from Braun getting a kick out of pronouncing Dickens' name in Season 7, <laughs> it seems like humor is being increasingly cut from the script. Is this the inevitable result of needing to tie up so many loose ends in the fantasy that are very dark and dramatic, or do you feel like there's still a place for humor through the end of the series? Yeah, I, I view the climax of this story as not really the place for humor. Right. And I I don't know why, really, because so many dark and and truly tragic things were happening throughout the series and mm. it always felt like the humor kept it watchable in places but for some reason as we get closer to the end I feel like let's jettison some of the stuff that made this interesting in the beginning in favor of making it interesting in the end and the, humor is one of those things that needs to be jettisoned in my opinion the same thing happened with Breaking Bad though right like yeah. one of the things that defined Breaking Bad was it's black kind of skewed sense of humor and that as we got further into the plot just kind of went away because I guess it's 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 hard to find the humor in Walt being a complete monster and Jesse being tortured by neo-Nazis like yeah you know I mean there's still a little bit like the hound giving Th Thoro shit about his top knot not uh, fooling everybody there's a little bit but like things are really bleak and it would be semi inappropriate for something like pod the rod to pop up in the middle of danny losing one of her children i see what you did there yeah oh uh, <laughs> i didn't even see what i did there <laughs> popped up all stealth like um I, it's tough because like you know game of thrones certainly known for its humor or that's part of the things it's it's well i don't know if it's known for its humor but breaking bad certainly was too, and yeah. it just got less funny as it went on because it's harder like People like, like I'm very sensitive to tonal shifts. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm in the middle of a very serious scene and then like they come out with slapstick right out, it always is jarring to me. Which is why I thought it worked well for you know uh, 
David to just take over an episode and like inject a bunch of humor into it mm-hmm. in the early goings before shit gets grim. But think about like what it'd be like if a, a truly side splitting scene happened right after the red wedding. <laughs> You know, uh-huh. it would be it, it's 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 not appropriate to the vibe that the audience is feeling, I guess. So I think they're right to be kind of sh- to shy away from that. Uh, anything you want to care you, you care to add? No. All right. Well, that's our podcast. I think I finally got caught up because we've had two supersized mailbags to catch up with the stuff that we didn't have that, that, that essentially taken a week off. We're now caught up. If you'd like to send us feedback, Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Of course, we still have our spoiler-filled thread on the forums, forums.baldmove.com. Uh, thanks for uh, coming along with the voyage with us. Uh, still got several episodes left to go. We'll be back next week for more. Until then, I'm Aaron. I'm Jim. Later. <laughs>